Vigilante Wins here on the 18th in a special episode of the Culture Crime Fighters with my usual uh, partner in Culture Crime Fighting, Matt from Fireball Productions, but none other than the man, the myth, the legend, Robert Meyer Burnett himself. Howdy. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, sirs. Oh, glad to have you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, it was great meeting you, Vigilante, you. even though I called you what I call you, Valkyrie. Valiant Renegade. And Valiant everyone Renegade. Does. Oh, yeah. Everybody does it. That's the joke. Uh, Gary has done it. Um, Comics Division has done it. Uh, a few other people have done it. It's, well, it's you know, you know, it's funny. I read a lot. And when you know how when you're reading a book and you might you look at a character name and you kind of file it away because every time the character you, you just kind of know what it is. Hermione. So, and I, I just, you know, I see that I see the V and that was the first thing I was thinking of. It's just in my yeah. mind. That's the. So I apologize for for being remiss. That's the thing. I, I think it's just the V and R and W. You kind of it's a similar thing. So you just yeah. file it away in the same memory bank and it just it happens. It's a pneumatic, okay. what is it, a pneumatic memory device? And it yeah, didn't work yeah, this yeah. time. It didn't work. I mean, there's, it's like the opposite of Johnny. Was it Johnny Mnemonic? Johnny Mnemonic, yeah. Johnny Mnemonic, yeah. yeah. That's a rough movie. I was rewatching that. It was like, oof. You know, it was that was actually directed by a, a, a vi an artist named Robert Longo, who became, he came to prominence. He directed New Order's uh, Truth Faith, True Faith video, and he did these huge illustrations of people falling. This is way pre 9-11, like falling in the, through the air. And oh, wow. it was his big directorial debut. And it felt like just, it. it's not good. It's not. It's really like it's it's egregious. But it's kind of interesting. It's like one of those movies where you're like, how did this happen? You know, it's like a case study. Yeah. I, well, you know, when you're a big, it, it's like, well, he's a big famous artist. You know, his, he's the cause celeb of New York now. Why he's directing music videos. Let's let him direct a feature. Yeah. And like, I understand that thought process, but uh, then sometimes it doesn't work out. <laughs> it's, there's some remarkable movies that come along every once in a while that are very like room esque where they're done with like a lot of love and passion. And they're these sort of like tragic, uh, you know, uh, like executions where it's like, they really meant well. And, but you tell they're inept, but it's fascinating because they're not hacks in the traditional sense. Like they're right. really trying. They just have no instincts. Well, I think what's interesting about, you know, movie making is the one thing in the world that most people think they can do. Like I, I know I couldn't be a brain surgeon. That's true. You know, but there, everybody, because yeah. we all watch movies, so we think, well, I could have done better. Right. I can't tell you how many, how many, like, like living in LA for the last 30 years, people are like, you know, I've got a great idea for a sitcom. Me and everybody. my friends, so funny. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Everyone has an idea. I, I used to live in LA for 10 years, Robert. And, uh, you know, every, then. everywhere you go. And I'm one of them too. I always <laughs> had the same kind of arrogance about it. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I know I would have handled this better or this, my script is better or whatever. But you know, what's really, what's really interesting. Like, like when I would get reels in, when I'd look at like cinematographer reels, you know, they've, there's, they've got all of this beautiful imagery on them. And yeah. there's a lot of people that, but what I want to see is show me how you would shoot a conversation between two people sitting at a table talking. Can you make that more interesting than traditional coverage? And, you know, like, does it, does it work? And you'd be surprised that there's a lot of people that, that they think they understand the mechanics of say shot progression, mm -hmm. setting a scene. And they really don't. Because I know, when you, I really, 
Oh, sorry, go oh, ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I just – I made a few shorts, and I learned how much I didn't know. Yeah. Like, I thought I, I did, and I was I, like, oh, no. Like, even just the basic setups, it's a lot goes into it. I'm a big believer. I think everybody, everybody who's a film fan should, and now you've got the technology you're carrying it around in your pocket. I think everybody should try and make a movie, whether it's a short, mm -hmm. because you will learn so much, not just about movie making, but just about thinking clearly. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, oh, okay, you're going to say you're going to tell a story like, like shoot a scene where it's a breakup. Like David mm -hmm. Fincher did it at the beginning of the social network. It's like a nine minute scene and it takes you on a total journey. And it's two people sitting at a table and, and it's great. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I look at that and I'm like, can you do that? And I know you're comparing, I'm comparing people to David Fincher, which is way unfair, right. but the idea is still the same. Can you sit down and shoot a conversation between two people and make that uh, so an audience understands what's happening in the scene, hmm. you know, via cutting, via performance, via shot choice, and and people you you learn an immense amount doing that. And you know, we're all like we're all on the internet ranting and railing at people all the time. Like, <laughs> what does this suck? You know, like yesterday I'm like, this really the new Star Trek Picard trailer comes out and gosh, we're gonna get Q, the Borg, and alternate timelines. Is that Star Trek is is that everything it's become now? It's all time it's all the, these tropes that worked they worked well because they were special. Right. You'd watch a couple of seasons of Star Trek and then you might get a Q story. Right. One Q story after 52 episodes. So a Q story was something that was unique and special. And now it's like time travel. Eh, that's easy. Let's do that. Borg. Ah, sure. Why not? Everyone loves the Borg. It's almost as if the Star Trek producers only have watched the same 10 episodes and they haven't watched any other Star Trek. Hey, that wouldn't shock me. No, me neither. I think it's worse than that. I, and it, this kind of ties into a bunch of stuff I kind of want to talk about. It's just, what are these people thinking? How does this happen? And I think they're just Googling. I think they just Google. Oh, I, I agree. And they just say, oh, Borg is top. We'll use Borg. They like Borg. We'll put Borg in. Well, that you know, that's what they're, that's what they're doing. But it, it's like, it's always context is king. There was even an episode of, of, uh, of Star Trek Discovery that alluded to that. But the idea that that they don't in order to have the Borg, I mean the Borg showed up halfway through the second season of Next Generation and it was one half of an episode and it was really intriguing and then a season and a half later at the end of season 3 they bought brought the Borg back for the best of both worlds. So after 3 seasons of Star Trek which was, oh, it was, so it's 26, 22, and 26 episodes. What is that? Like more than 70 episodes of Star Trek. We got two Borg episodes. And that's why they were special. Because you had, you had 70 other episodes of Star Trek to surround those episodes to build up the characters and build up the storylines and make the Borg special. And then in the Borg episode, The Best of Both Worlds, the secondary story was about Riker's power struggle with Shelby to become just to he was supposed to take his own command and Shelby wanted to be second in command of the enterprise. So you had a really interesting, compelling human story along with the apocalyptic Borg storyline, which makes it, that's what compelling Star Trek is. And now we've got the Borg. Oh, we've got, we got to go back into the past, into Los Angeles of the past and which they did in Voyager already. So there's nothing that we're getting in modern Star Trek. That's really new. 
and well, it's unfortunate. I, it was something we were talking about yesterday about the new Indiana Jones movie. Is what what I think that is happening is that you know these executives they have the numbers, they have the streaming numbers of what people are watching. And I think they go back and they saw during the coup, you know, wow, people were rewatching Next Generation, they were rewatching Indiana Jones, they were rewatching you know a- Aliens, Predator, all these movies. They're like, okay, so there's still juice in this berry of these franchises. It's like when the lesson should be. No, we are so not interested in what your modern entertainment is that we went back to the stuff that we used to enjoy. It's not that we need a superficial facsimile of this of this thing today. Just because I like the Borg in the 90s doesn't mean I need the Borg in 2021. It's just that that was good entertainment. Yours is bad entertainment. That's the lesson. I I, I don't disagree with you. I, I What I want to know is, you know, nobody ever... Um, Nobody ever got rich following trends. You know, you get rich setting trends. And all of these IPs that they keep going back to, where are the new IPs? Like, yes. where, 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 are, where are the IPs of today that in 25 years, audiences will then look back fondly? It's so weird because what's happened is it's become so expensive to make things. You know, you're looking at, you make a, a, a quote-unquote tentpole property and you're spending $150 million dollars. And when you're spending that much money, by definition, you have to be as risk averse as possible. You have to make sure that your $150 million is protected. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand that economic reality. I, I totally do. So it's like, well, we're not going to spend $150 million on an untried property. Mm-hmm. But that's when your visionary filmmakers come in. You know, your visionary filmmakers are supposed to like, you know, a lot of people didn't want to make Back to the Future back in, in when mm-hmm. it came out in 85 and and it took a long time for bob gale and robert zemeckis to get that movie made well, you know think Steven's- about the difference between alien and aliens it was like seven years or six years or something like that like that's how risk averse they were with those like big like they didn't just immediately okay alien was a hit let's make another one it took like seven years and cameron really had to convince them that it was going to be a like, was worth well and 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 more than that Cameron was passionate about making a sequel to Aliens. He loved Alien. He had an idea. He he only he had the juice after Terminator, which was his own. He write, wrote and directed that film. It was his own original. Well, original. I was going to say. Colin I was going to say original. But uh, his idea, uh, it was a pastiche. And then you know he comes up with an idea. So you have a passionate filmmaker that is hell bent on making a sequel to Aliens. Nowadays that doesn't happen. The studios decide, okay, we're going to resurrect this franchise. And they think, "Mm, who can we find to do it? And then they go after these directors and who doesn't want a job? Of course. But then what you get is you get, I mean, look, I do think I've met Tim Miller. I think Tim Miller is a world-class filmmaker. Like he made Deadpool, the first Deadpool for a relatively Mm -hmm. paltry $65 million. But, you know, he loves the Terminator franchise. But when they do the, the Terminator franchise, where do you go with that? They just but keep recycling <laughs> the same idea. And I think Stop. the thing, yeah, the it, thing about the Terminator, the Terminator franchise, after watching the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which is actually quite good, where do you go from there? You just keep telling the same story. It's the, oop, it's the Skynet. It's the evil AI that's going to, and there's really, I, I think, unfortunately, as well-made or something as you, you can look, the technology is there. So Terminator Dark Fate's fine. But you know, you go in there and you look at that and you're like, did this did this movie really need to be made? 
And it's because Skynet yeah. spent a lot of money on on the franchise. They were going to make three Skynet. movies. <laughs> Skynet spent <laughs> the Skynet conspiracy for the yeah. future yeah, to ruin the movie yeah, franchise to well, throw people off the scent. I mean, they want to make money, but it's like they didn't buy the Terminator franchise because somebody had a great idea about how you could extend the franchise. They're like, ooh, Terminator's available. Let's get the franchise. And, and then what I also find frustrating is if you own something like the Terminator franchise, there are many bits of previously existing material like, oh, I don't know, the Dark Horse comic book mm. that has a lot of great stories that were told by really passionate people who loved the franchise and had ideas for the franchise, which is why Dark Horse allowed them to write comics in the first place because they don't want to publish shitty, shitty Terminator comics. Right. Like the, the Aliens versus Predator comic that Dark Horse published, the first one, is actually quite good. Mm. Why not go look at that and go, let's adapt that? Because they you don't know, have any passion. There's dude. no existing IP. Well, I, I, I honestly, I just, my I just have a theory a, about executives. Definitely that, a joke. No, but I just have uh, like a theory about executives that they just they have a, no passion for any of this, but a tremendous amount of hubris about what should get made. Because all I see is just pale imitations of things that came before, but their fingerprints all over it. Right, yeah. and and uh, again, but they, you know, they're put in these positions. They're Ivy League educated business people that, on paper, are really good hires. You look at these people like, oh my god, he graduated from Harvard or Yale or Princeton. We're going to hire this guy because, from a corporate standpoint, you want somebody to work at that level that have had that has had that, and that makes perfect sense to me. But then the problem is. Uh, now you're working at a company that's making DC Universe movies. Do you know anything about the DC Universe? Do you know why people love Superman and Batman? Do you care to know why? Like, that's right. a big question, too. Even if you didn't know before, are you willing to do research? And I hate to interrupt the conversation, but I have to because the Ogre benefactor of this channel, Ogre Squatcher 101, has tipped in a spectacular $101. Oh my god. 51 cents, which is insane cuz he 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 shows up like a like a he's the vigilante of the vigilante Williamson channel. Uh <laughs> Dildo believes he's laundering his money. I don't care. I don't ask any questions. I don't ask any questions. Thank you Ogre Squasher. I did not miss your super chat. Just wanted That is so a very generous. You know, anybody who supports a YouTube channel uh in that way deserves to be thanked and lauded. I mean, it's can you imagine like we now live in a world where our audience can appreciate us directly like that. Yeah. And to have that kind of patronage, it's pretty special. So kudos yeah. to you, gentlemen, for eliciting both, that kind of uh, No, yeah. we're both pretty small channels and pretty new at this. Like I'm not on my one year anniversary is like in a week. Like we basically yeah. are brand new. And the fact that we have like fans that come along and that are this generous and this passionate and this consistent is amazing. Well, that it speaks that speaks well to you guys. So kudos to you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, yeah, I was, yeah. you know, I just they're they're awesome. Just an awesome group of people. That's why I'm crediting him as my executive producer. He literally is as on videos. I'm starting to do. I'm starting to do more videos. He's the executive producer. Thank you, Ogre Squasher. You literally keep a channel that's not monetized monetized. I your your uh, contribution is beyond belief. So thank you so much. And it's yeah. hard now to get monetized. It's what three thousand yeah. or four thousand viewing hours plus a thousand subscribers. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's 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 tough. It takes time. It takes a while. It takes a while. Yeah. Um, I was going uh, going back to your Ivy League comment. That's an interesting angle that yes. actually a lot of people don't talk about, but it's very much there because I was an actor for a very long time, like fifteen years, and uh, my buddy 
that I went to acting school with. I had like, you know, not, not Yale on my resume, but I had like these good, like art conservatories, like for mm -hmm. acting that, you know, they teach you the craft. Uh, and I went to school with a buddy who had basically just started, but he was a Cornell graduate and immediately, like he just was so at the front of the line for, you know, getting it, just even getting meetings with these agents because the, these agents, they're all kind of like jocks, you know, they're all kind of like, they went to, you know, college for, and they, yeah. they respect that, you know, pedigree. They're like, oh, okay, you're a real person. You're not one of these wannabe artists. And like, it just opens the door for him. And it's like, meanwhile, he doesn't have that much experience. And, you know, it's like, there's a lot of other people that are, are like really into this or artistic, but it's not, that's just not, they're not interested. They're like, well, you can go to Cornell. He did. Until you've done something that may, makes them interested, like you're suddenly in a hit show or you, right. you get some juice on you. And what I there's also for people that get work in the industry, there's also a bit of luck, obviously. And there's also a cool factor. Like if you find yourself in a movie, like on the independent film circuit that's deemed cool or it's on yeah. the festival circuit, whatever that movie is. Uh, then suddenly you get an extra added jolt of heat for your career. And then you people will get to see you and meet you because they think that just because your proximity to something cool, that means you could rub off on another project and that project would be cool too. And when I say cool, I mean cool within the industry. You know, something that's getting a lot of buzz or 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 makes a lot of money, whatever, however that's defined, that you have that that cool factor. And you do need that to get work because as everyone says, you're always judged by your last project. Mm -hmm. And there's there's definitely like, I knew this kid, dude, I went to acting school with, uh, and he, he's a pretty successful actor now. And like, the as soon as I met him, I was like, oh, this kid's gonna make it. Like, and it was just that he, it wasn't even that he was a terrific actor. It was just that he had all the right collection of characteristics. Like, mm -hmm. He had like a spark about him, but he was humble enough, but he was like comfortable with himself. And he also said like the right things, but he meant it. So I was like, oh, this kid, he right, he's right. Like I, I knew within a year he'd be on good TV shows and he was, and he's like, he was on that like Stargirl show, like as like one of the superheroes. So it's oh, like, wow. yeah, so like he like hit and he's only like, I don't know, 22, 23, something like that. But I was like, I could just see it happening. Like, oh, okay. You just yeah, some I mean, people. You, can, you like you said, you can tell. Yeah, especially with actors like I've met a lot of actors in the business over the last time I've lived here. And you can tell you can. I mean, those people might secretly be assholes and their career will implode later. But you can see that, OK, <laughs> they, 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 they really do have that that quality about them. They, they do. And also, like it, it was more like I knew the industry would love him. They would eat him up. Like, I know what they value and what they are, what they are. And also, like, you know, he deserves to be there. He wasn't a bad actor, but it was just it was just those collection of like you know, the, the it factor that they say is a collection of characteristics. I was like, he's perfect. He's exactly what they're looking for. And of course, right in. Yeah. You know, I met, I was kind of a, fr a good friend of mine was friends with Vince Vaughn and John Favreau in the mid nineties before they had done swingers. Right on. And I was hanging out with those guys and, you know, when, to meet Vince Vaughn, Vince Vaughn was one of the most, he's probably still is. I just haven't seen him in a long time. He was one of the most charismatic, funniest, people i'd ever met really and, and like you couldn't be in a room with him without him making you smile and i i mean every he would sometimes he would gently rib you about something he could wantonly make fun of you but in a funny more of a loving way and he had incredible stories and he was when i saw the movie swingers for the first time for those it's kind of a people don't talk about it anymore but favreau wrote it and doug lyman directed it and 
and it starred Favreau and Vince Vaughn. And and you watch that movie, and Vince Vaughn like is so charismatic. He leaps off the screen, and you know they made that movie for three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and they were just basically being themselves, going to places in L.A. that they hung out in anyway. Yeah, and of course and they sold that movie for five million dollars to to Miramax, and off off went their careers. Yeah, but it's also it's about a subject matter that generally is about the most the least interesting thing is actors living in L.A. It's right. like <laughs> of all the topics, who could, like it's so boring, and it's especially especially amongst people who live in L.A. and are actors. Everyone's just like, oh, another one of these fucking movies, and it's just it was it's awesome. Like it's fun, it's funny, it's memorable, it's quotable, it's very relatable, and it has like what a cameo from Heather Graham at the oh, end. Yeah, Heather Graham. Know? That's who. Uh, that's who John Favreau meets. And what I love about it is Favreau's character is such a sad sack. So, oh, you know, God. he's pining over his old girlfriend. Like we all recognize. <sighs> and there's things about that movie, like you know, you go to the public golf course in the middle of the day because nobody's there and you're not at, you're not working anyway, so you can just sit there and have conversations about your love life. I mean, it really captured a moment in time that really was so L.A. I, lo- uh, I love when he's in the diner in in uh, Vegas, or like, and he's trying to make those jokes. He's like, uh, I'll have the eggs in the age of enlightenment, please. And she just, he's, and he thinks like, oh, it was too highbrow for reference. And she just like comes back in a second Voltaire. Like uh, she I, totally got it. It was just uh, a terrible joke. It like, was so good. So good. I, I, yeah. And it, it's, that movie's actually very, very smart. And I think those guys were, because they are, they were really smart just in general. I mean, and, and you, you see it. And of course, look at their careers now. I mean, Favreau. Mm-hmm founded the mcu directing iron man and vince vaughn has had a great although he's a, still a great actor like you watch something like brawl and cell block 99 and he's fucking great or dragged across concrete with mel gibson watch dragged across concrete oh my god really and yeah and i i i, I thought vince vaughn would wind up i kind of like the fact that he's doing these all kinds of different things like he was in freaky you know that yeah, more, yeah. and and he's just done some really eclectic stuff which i think is kind of you know he's not i think he stopped trying to be this leading man going after these giant roles but instead he sort of settled into this he has a really interesting career now which i think is great well part of the thing that's happened is comedies aren't really a thing anymore they're not as big of a Dude. i mean not that he 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 was limited to that but that was really where you know he was the biggest star is doing doing comedies and that's not a thing and actually i kind of want to piggyback off your point to something that you said in a recent video we were talking about love right that there has to be love in these franchises i think that's what we're talking about we're talking about the the clash between corporations and corporate thinking with art artists and creative thinking and that 100%. clash creates this where where you can make a swingers in the um, 90s and have some indie ended basically an independent film that's sold to Miramax to become successful. And you can never have something like that now. You can't have it because everything has to be corporate approved. And rather the idea is wokeness or the idea is blow stuff up a bunch of times. It doesn't matter. It's whatever becomes the trend. We're just going to beat it into the ground. Wait 10 years until after the trend has already fallen off and then realize, oh, nobody cares about this trend anymore that we've beaten to the ground. And there's no original stories. I completely agree with you. You know, and I think there are places in Hollywood, like I look over at Blumhouse, Jason Blum's company, because if you're at Blumhouse, like Lee Wanell, for instance, they had Invisible Man, you know, that was they're going to try and make they couldn't make the MonsterVerse work on the on the corporate level. So now they've got the MonsterVerse at Blumhouse's level. And you got a guy like Lee Wanell coming in and writing and directing the Invisible Man for eight million bucks. 
you know, that was a labor of love on his part. He wanted to establish himself further as a writer, director, as an auteur. And he goes and he makes this. Blumhouse gives you enough money, but not too much. And if it turns out well, then they'll release it theatrically. And so Invisible Man comes out, $8 million spend, and they make $100 million on that movie. That's a huge monster hit. And for a company yeah. like Blumhouse, which is small, what you're doing is you're finding great creators and you're allowing them to work within a certain paradigm and they they succeed. And that's how it's it's supposed to be. But the problem is for a big corporation, they're like, Ugh, well, you only you only made a hundred million dollars. We need you to make a billion dollars. And so to make a billion dollars, the correlation is well, we have to spend 150 million. I mean, how many, that's, that's how many different, that's, well, that's almost 20 invisible mans, mm -hmm. but yeah. you know, if you make 20 invisible mans and they each make on an 8 million spend and they each make hundred million dollars, which they won't do, but let's say that they did for the sake of argument, that's still great because you've launched a bunch more talent that is loyal to you, that will bring their projects to you first. And with all the content that we need on streaming services, you're better off. If you're trying to roll the dice, like I do not understand, I do not understand why studios can't go back to a model and be making theatrical tent poles for $50 million. Oh I my God. It, I say it this all the time. I'm sorry. It just has to be because of the parent companies aren't interested in anything other than those explosive profits because it's, there doesn't make any sense. Like you just described that profit. What, what other business can you invest 8 million, get a hundred million back inside of two years and, and that's not good enough for you. Like I can't. I just can't understand that. <laughs> I, I, well, I'll tell you who it's good enough for: Jason Blum and Blumhouse. Sure, because sure, he loves yeah, it. You, you know they they've they've made that model work, and whether they're doing the Insidious franchise or whatever they're involved in, they've kept their costs down. And in a way, they're kind of the successors to companies like Roger Corman's New World Pictures or New Concord or whatever. And what Charlie Band was doing with Full Moon, in a way. That it's a low, I mean, they're they're a little more limited in terms of the kind of movies they're making. But, you know, I look at something like M. Night Shyamalan was kind of in the doghouse for making movies like Lady in the Water and The Happening. But he comes back to Blumhouse and he goes and he makes The Visit for five million bucks. And he was smart. He's like, I'm, I'm in director jail. Nobody wants to work with me. I was kind of an arrogant prick. And then I fell from grace because my movie sucked. He comes back and he makes The Visit for Blumhouse for five million bucks. It makes good money. You know, and then he goes and he does Split, which is a backdoor sequel to Unbreakable, which nobody really knew until the end. And then it's like that made good money. And then he comes back and he makes Glass. And now he's doing something. He's adapting a French graphic novel, his new movie Old, which looks pretty good. I watched the trailer. I'm like, well, that's something I haven't seen before. You know, you go to the beach and suddenly you're aging two years every single hour that passes. Well, that's kind of messed up. But I want to see that movie. And, and that's kind of a crazy thing for him to do. I have a director friend that I wish I, you could talk to. This guy Jared, uh, who like, yeah, uh, yeah, he he like really respects Shyamalan's. Like, he's like his shot composition is really like top top tier. And I was like, wow, are we really complimenting Shyamalan right now? And he's like, he had all these great arguments as to why. I was like, oh, like that's the difference between someone who's like a professional who does this and can really see the difference between like you know the average director and like someone who does know what he's doing maybe his story and scripts are a little inconsistent maybe he's a little indulgent on uh, some of the run times but uh it's you know no he actually does know what he's doing as far as making a good movie i no i agree and look i watch things like i really like the script for the happening and when i saw the finished film i'm like there's not one thing in this movie that works like nothing <laughs> like nothing works like I'm, I'm watching this and i i really love the script those kind of stories are right up my alley and i i was actually perplexed 
when I saw the film because I'm like, how does nothing about this movie work? And it, it's, <laughs> I, it's always, amazing because I think I think M Night Shyamalan's first three movies. Well, actually, I didn't see his very first movie, but The Sixth Sense, uh, Unbreakable, and Signs are all very respectable oh, yeah. works. His first three big movies, sheesh. Yeah, and you yeah. think, man, those films are all world class, A list back at the, before when. Bruce Willis was still a list and cared, mm. you know, it was, it was, yeah. those were good. Those were good, solid, really interesting director driven writer, director driven visions. They're all and, unique ideas. Let's give them that. I mean, yep, you know, yep. even if the execution is like not up to your standard or whatever, I mean, each one of those has got its own vision and its own idea behind it and they're distinct and unique and, I mean, God, that's like unprecedented for now, you know. We don't get that now, unfortunately. No, yeah. and I, and I find you know because it's hard for people to take a risk, and and I I I and I I honestly think that nowadays, like I read a great deal. I mean, I I don't just watch TV and and movies. I read a lot because when I was growing up, movies and TV shows and books to me were equal. Like I would, I was huge Stephen. I still am. I've been reading Stephen King for fucking forty years, and I longer. And I would eagerly, like the first day a Stephen King book would come out, I would take the bus to the, because I couldn't, I was too young. I'd, I'd drive to the, or take the bus to the bookstore and buy a Stephen King book and bring it home that day and devour it. I mean, that was, it was hugely important to me. And nowadays, you know, I go into these, um, I go into these meetings and people just, they don't know anything. They don't know, they, you talk about Stephen King and, they haven't read the books and there's no sense of history. Dude, people's fucking lack of history when it comes to even just filmmaking, like books. Oh my God. I, like how the amount of actors I know who've never seen the Godfather. I'm like, how on earth have you That's not incredible. seen it? It's incredible. It blows my mind how poorly researched a lot of these people are. And like in L, they're so boring in LA. All they ever fucking talk about are things like friends. And it's like, all right, fine. It was a good show, The Office. But it's like they like like three things. They don't have like this deep passion or knowledge of like the history. And it's like, I mean, not everyone has to be like that, but it's just like you didn't even try to you see. At least research. Things. At least watch it one time. Well, have a little I'll, respect. Also, you know, the the history of, of television, like you go back and even back into the 50s when you, you think about shows like The Honeymooners and you the sitcoms like Carol O'Connor and, and All in the Family playing Archie Bunker mm -hmm. and then moving all the way up through like a lot of my, I call them the real actors, the actors that are all working, they have a working knowledge of the history of cinema and television. Because they have performances that they admire from 50 or 60 or 70 years ago, yeah. you know, and, and, yeah. and they can wax rhapsodic about all of these things. And to me, the people that can only talk about friends is they wanted to be on that show. Like mm -hmm. they didn't necessarily want to be an actor or love the craft of acting. They wanted to be Jennifer fucking Aniston. And I understand yeah. that I can respect that. But if you're trying to, pretend that you're you want to be an, an act an actor is a life man it's a lifetime avocation you don't just dabble and go and be, ah, i'm gonna try this for i don't know half six months if i can't be a star in six months eh. i mean i heard once i mean people have said it the, the, and it's true it takes 10 years to become an overnight success in la yeah yeah you know and and i think that's true of almost any profession but everybody focuses yeah. on the the one person that oh my god they right. they 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 just exploded on the pop culture landscape. I want to be like sell, that person. 
Dude, they sell that narrative, and I think it's because it serves their interests because I think it just keeps them packed with, like, you know, lots of wannabes that they can exploit because <clears throat> it's like all their – every time Hollywood depicts someone, like, making it, it's always this – first of all, someone always does it for them, like, selects them, like, magically anoints them, like, into right. the business, which is just not how it goes. And uh, and then it's also, like, these overnight – like, you've got the thing, and it's, like, this magic lightning bolt. And it's, like, even the people who do, like, they still have to put in, like, so much work and so much effort, and you have to be your best ambassador. There's so much to it. Um, but also, I, I, I want to push back a little bit on what you're saying because it's, like, I used to feel – that used to be my philosophy. It was, like, the real actors, they'll rise to the top – now, man, this industry, it's so, it's, I mean, I was only been in the time that I was in it, but it was like this, this culture of conformity that they have, that they've adopted. Maybe it's always been like this, but it's oh, just. I, as- I, I'm, I, I agree with you. I want to make, make it clear. I don't think the real actors necessarily rise to the top. I think the people that I've met that are already successful, oh, okay. that have had longevity in their careers, those mm-hmm. are people that are doing theater, they do TV, they do sure. movies. Those are people that the the ones that have staying power you know the ones mm. that have already 20 or 30 year careers and uh, because they watch they e- even the biggest celebrities you can imagine if you start asking them or meeting them uh, about because i've i've done a lot of documentary work and mm. like for movies and television shows and when i start talking to specifically actors that have been around for a long time they always they can cite these really interesting sometimes very obscure performances from various actors that like have you ever seen this performance and they love you can see the love in their eyes for for these classic performances and 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 i think that's what made it's like people that you know they want to get into music people that are really passionate they can they can give you a dissertation on their favorite record yeah you know and they they know these things and i think a lot of the time now especially now more than ever, we have a society where you can be an Instagram, a famous person on Instagram, have millions of followers and people, why, why work? Who, I don't want to be an actor. I can just be famous on Instagram. We do have a society where you can do that now. And, yeah. and it, it, you can be, you can come on YouTube and start your own YouTube show and build an audience. I mean, what's really interesting is I made this, I feel, I don't feel bad, but uh, I made a tweet people are always asking me about like, how come you're friends with people in the fandom menace? And I'm like, cause I like them, you know? <laughs> and, and, and people are like, your whole show is based on inclusion and being friends with people. And I'm like, yeah, but, but I am not my brother's keeper. If I like somebody, they can have different points of view. They can have diametrically politically opposed points of view, but that doesn't mean I can't still like them. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of people find that strange and I, I was like, look, if How you did that put become strange, wasn't that I, normal? Dude, I don't know. And I said, I made the crack. I said, if you put my three favorite fandom menace channels together, they they have more viewers than Alex Kurtzman's Clarice TV series. <laughs> and and I'm like, that's the world we live in. So, you know, we live in but a that, world where, where people are busting world. their ass and it's just a different form of entertainment. YouTube is still something that people look down on. That's not that's going to change. It's changing now. A guy like Joe Rogan, he's right. he's somebody that's commanding money and attention and he is just all he's doing is doing long form interview shows that they cannot do. Right. On network TV. He and did would never new. do, by the way. Would never, never do. do. I mean, so, he takes deep dives sometimes that last three and a half hours with somebody where you can really get into the nitty gritty. 
And he, but he also talks about stuff you're not supposed to talk about. Like he, mm-hmm. he'll challenge uh, coup restrictions. He'll talk about these some of these political movements. Like from a scru- like he'll scrutinize him. He's not like sounding off. You know, he'll he'll talk about that. But I, it's frustrating that this this fandom menace gets this characterization of being exclusive. It's like it's absolutely not. Like you're you're. It's just it's a passionate group of people. I'm sure there's dickheads on the fringes. Of course there always are. But it's just it's a. I think maybe what intimidates people is that it's uncompromising, but that's because the passion is so complete. It's so runs so deep. And I imagine that that's what you gravitate towards, or that's what appeals to you about, you know, people in the fandom. And it's even if you don't share their conclusions or share their worldview, it's like you, re- you identify with someone who cares that much about something. A hundred percent. And not only that, like I started watching midnight's edge because I liked their videos. Mm. You know, if I if I disagreed with something, that's fine. But I appreciated the fact that they were actually spending a lot of editorial time putting these things together. And and I really enjoyed their videos, even when there were things that they were reporting on that I didn't think were true or disagreed with. I still appreciated the take, Mm -hmm. you know, and listening to them and having gotten to know them. And and they've kind of taken me under their wing. (laughs) You know, I've met at like Andre and Tom and Rob and all those people. I really like them. Like, I like hanging out with them because. Yeah, we're passionate fans. And I mm-hmm. think what's really interesting is we live in a time now where our favorite franchises, pick your franchise, your favorite franchise was derived from usually either one person or a couple of people. And it became popular. And because of that popularity, it was then acquired by these entities that wanted to exploit what the, what the individual creators originally made popular. And by definition, because you're no longer getting an individual point of view, you're just getting what a corporation wants. I mean, look, corporations are fine. You know, they're yeah. they're they're great. They can they create the future. They build our infrastructure. There's a yeah. lot of good. Raise around fifty them. million dollars without one. Yeah, exactly. You, know yeah. I mean? exactly. you do true. need them. Yeah. But when it comes to when it comes to creating stories. The, the needs of the only needs of a corporation when it comes to storytelling is for that story to sell to as many people as possible. But within that, what makes that story good, that is beyond a corporation's ability to create. They can look at spreadsheets and they can right. do market analysis all and that's they what they fucking do. And you see it in Star Wars. It's like, OK, we know people like the Millennium Falcon check. You know what I mean? They like, OK, this movie had this much action sequences. Let's make sure we like mirror that exact same thing. And then but the thing is, it's like it's like they don't know what they're doing, but they also don't seem to have any interest in learning how to do it yes. because it's like you we've That's never lived in an too. era where you can get more feedback than right now and you could literally you could do like a study on twitter and just hear what did people not like about it and really do the work and eventually you'd come week, to the conclusion to binge watch something if you're involved in it but i mean like eventually they could come to the conclusion that ultimately what the fans want is just a good story and you can't manufacture that without you know like allowing like a creative to do their thing but it's like that's the one part of their brain it's like they won't go there but they'll do all the other work to figure out all this other stuff except for the one magic thing which is just let a creator be creative and just back the fuck off all because you don't know what you're doing and you're not even interested in learning how to do it so why do you assume you can it's so and- arrogant it's it's a very strange thing i mean i think it's by the way somebody did ask you put up on the screen what i did on the dota yeah we were talking about it pre-show so Uh, what i do on the dota show is i work on what's called the animatic so obviously uh animation every frame 
of animation, just like every frame of a visual effect, costs money. So you never want to animate something fully until you have a locked, what's called an animatic, where an animatic is basically very rudimentary. It's the shots are there, but the finished animation isn't. So you see a very rough version of the animation. So instead of going out and shooting shots with a camera, you create virtually these shots, wide shots, medium shots, close-up shots, and you have very, um, very rudimentary movement and things like that. So what I do is the animatics that are built, we, we cut them together, I refine them. So you can sit down, so I, I, I cut the, the show. So the show, you can actually watch the show from beginning to end in this rough state. So I cut that, and then once it's done, I work with Ashley Miller and uh, uh, Eugene and Zach, who Eugene's the animation director, and then Zach is, is Ashley's second in command. And we work together, and once we get the animatic finished, we then send it to Korea, and they finish the animation, which takes four to six months. So that's what I do. And then also, uh, Ashley has me consult because, you know, obviously I've made films and things like that. I work with him uh, on other parts of the post-production process, such as sound mixes. So I go to sessions, which are called sound spotting sessions, where we watch an episode, and we're like, okay... Here's what I think. Here's the kinds of sound effects that we need. Like, what is it? You, you know, when you're shooting outside and you're recording sound, you can kind of hear where. But if you're in a castle, what does the castle sound like? Yeah. So when you're working in animation, you have to create that ambient noise. That's pretty cool. You know, so and yeah. and then this the the composer creates Dino, the composer who's a fucking genius. He creates the music. And so we we do it sound spotting. So we we put all the sounds that we want in and there are Ashley makes notes and we all make suggestions. And then those notes and all the pieces that we've put in are sent to be mixed. And then we get back a mix, which called a premix at first to hear it before the final mix happens. And we make notes on that. If we want something different or added or augmented, and then it goes back to the final mix and then we get the final mix back and listen to it and then sign off on it. Wow. So most of my, um, yeah. So I work in edit cause I've worked in, post-production editorial and post-production for a long time uh professionally i started editing my first feature in 1993 and so that's 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 my background is is post-production and editorial mostly but i've also produced and, and directed as well so it's fun and and dota has been a really gratifying experience because the people on it the writing staff everybody's very passionate about taking the dota lore from dota to the game and, and incorporating that and turning because the game has a lot of lore, but it doesn't have like long extended storylines like, say, Lord of the Rings. But it has a lot of traits and characteristics, and they're trying to incorporate that into the show. And it's a really surprising like one of the things I liked about it is when I, I did not read the scripts until after I worked on the episodes um, mm -hmm. because I didn't want to know what happened. I, I When I started yeah. working, I'm like, these episodes are awesome. And even though I'm watching in the rough, I'm working on the rough animatics. I, I get to sort of experience the show for the first time in a way, in a kind of a weird way. And I, I, I was always left like, Oh my God, what's going to happen next? Awesome. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was so much fun Isn't to work that on. Interesting that fan, like you, because there's a fan element to creation. I, is, oh yeah. Yeah. Everyone I mean, gets into it because they love it. Like that. Like if you're like, that's what it is. I mean, like there's this great quote from this guy. I forgot, but it's called the gap. Have you ever heard the gap quote, Robert Meyer Burnett? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, but I don't remember it. 
we used to talk it used to be like a really good like thing helpful thing during like acting school but it was basically like a lot of people most people get into stuff because they have taste you know like that's why you have gotta have like this taste in things but then like when you first start doing your art your art doesn't match up with your taste. Like you're not as yeah. good as the thing that you want to create. Right. And then it's like the harder you work, the more you keep at it, the more you close that gap and get to the point where you're like, right. your yeah, talent yeah, 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 yeah. Matches up with your taste. Yeah. And I was like, it's a very, it's a very encouraging thing because it is true. I mean, it's like, you know, the like, whew, my, my short films didn't match my taste. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, these are, you know, like the rudimentary. But it's like what you're talking about, with all that stuff. It's like, you can't imagine how much work goes into the things you completely take for granted like the sound mix like you're talking about like how many hours of work how much expertise oh. goes into stuff like that the levels and the just the placement the artistic placement of things like a you know a bowl being dropped like it's unreal it's oh, a lot and, and also you know there there are always tricks to every trade there are sound mixers that really understand things like for instance if you were just stop right now your room, everyone that's watching the show right now, the room that you're in has a sound to it. Even though there might not yeah. be anything going on, there's a sound, and that's called the ambient sound, the ambient noise in the room. That's just the... Well, if you were making an animated show and you didn't... You know, you just have people talking and you didn't have an ambient sound like in a castle, whether it was a slight wind blowing or an echo, it would seem false to you now you mm -hmm. might not know why it's false but a great sound mixer will know that and he'll be like well i've got 30 different ambient noises for this room mm -hmm. but since this is a fantasy series let's try this and it wouldn't be the traditional ambience but you're in a castle in the mountains of carpathia you know or whatever and the sound mixer will give you an ambient noise and you're like oh that's awesome because yeah. it it gives you a level of maybe ominous there's like it all it does is create an ominous feeling you know, like something's going to happen yeah. and you might not even be aware of it and they'll put it in the surround channels and they'll, they'll move, they'll, they'll move wow. the sound and th things you don't even like the, consciously the aware of, no. Yeah, and that's why aware, but you are subconsciously aware, like you mentioned. Right. And, and the sound mixers, great sound mixers are, they're like Rembrandt. That's they're, amazing. they're literally painting with sound and you could spend, you spend, I mean, I know you spend weeks on a great sound mix. And even my independent uh, movie Tango Shalom that I produce that's on the festival circuit right now. <laughs> that's a funny name. Yeah, Tango. It's it's a low budget indie film that I produced. I edited. I was the post production supervisor and the VFX supervisor on it. Wow. But our sound designer Steve Yaman was a fanatic, you know. And this movie was made with a very low budget, so a lot of the on location dialogue recording because we were shooting in you know shooting in the streets of New York. In Brooklyn, so a lot of the time, you the 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 sound that was recorded was not usable because it was so noisy, mm -hmm. and so he had to re-record. He had to do ADR, which is you go into a studio, automatic dialogue replacement, and you re-record the actor re-records his dialogue or her dialogue, trying to match the mouth movement. So awkward. It's so it's really hard to do, but wow. Steve. Steve oh, had like so these comfortable. Yeah, he had these microphones and and he's a fanatic. Stop. Stop. Is that right? No, okay, so I have to okay. Stop. Like it's so weird. It's, it's so, so it's weird. a weird thing, but sometimes you know you have to do it. If you've yeah. got a great sound mixer, like one of the things about low budget movies is sound can always be an issue. But Steve, our, it was funny when it I started takes you out of it like that. The second you watch somebody's thing and like they didn't use like a microphone, they just use like whatever the mic was on their camera that they're using, and you're out. You're out the you're, second you hear that 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 cut you're, you're done absolutely out and and 
you know, Steve spent literally because we, we had the time months refining the dialogue. And when I first, it was funny when I first, because I was there, we were sound spotting and mixing. But when I first got his final mix back and I listened to it in five point one, I was like, "This is amazing!" <laughs> like he's even though you know I'm there for the whole process and all that. I, I'm and every every part of a movie is like that. Like the girl, the woman that scored our film, this girl Zoe, she was she's a tango artist from Greece, and she'd never scored a film before. And so it took her a while. She worked with the director's wife, who was in the music business. And when I started hearing their cues coming back, and I was putting them up against picture, I'm like, again, I'm like, this is amazing. And she was finding like they were bringing in session players, like people that would play in the Greek national symphony they were just friends of hers so she'd bring these people to come in and play their string instruments in the studio for a day and i'm listening to like like i'm listening to stuff going for our little tiny low budget movie this is amazing you know and that's what that's what filmmaking is all about you find yeah. all these people from different disciplines and you you get them together and and that's what I love about filmmaking is that you have all of these really talented people that do different things and you bring them together. And if you're a good director or a good producer, you know how to utilize all those elements and create something greater than the sum of its parts. Like Ashley Miller, who created Dota, the series, he had never worked in animation before. Wow. And he knew that, but he's a great writer. So he's like, okay, I'm going to steep myself in the Dota lore and I'm going to write these stories. But then he found other friends of mine that had worked in animation for 25 years. And he's like, look, I need you to come on to the show and help me so we can make a great show. And I think great filmmakers, great producers, great directors, they know they need great collaborators. Fucking A. Because that's what you, Tarantino you know, says. He yep. says just like, and that's what's missing. I need you to do this and just you do it. Just however, the way you do it, just take care of that because I'm taking care of all this stuff. This is what I got. And then you you let someone just do their thing. And if they're great at it, it, all, it just makes you look better. It just reflects on you because the final product has got let your, your name on it. Let do their job. Yeah. You know, you always hear directors say that uh, that 90% of making a great movie is casting the movie properly. And, you know, when you 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 when you have the leeway to cast the people who you want, not just necessarily names, but if you're really looking for... You know, I, I did the documentary for the making of Usual Suspects, for mm, instance. Really? Yeah. Mm. And and interviewing, you know, we have Benicio Del Toro talking about Fenster, where he says, he makes a good point. He says, in that movie, my character Fenster's only point in the story is to die. He's one of the first suspects that dies. So I could play, I could have played that part normally, or I could have gone off the rails and off the reservation and created the a flip you, flip you for real. You don't understand what he's saying. And he's like, so I was, I, I said to Brian Singer, the director, I'll bring you this character. And if you don't like the character, we'll do another character. And so Brian went with him. And the first day they started shooting, like like the other actors are, are were coming up to Brian going, like Gabriel Burns, like, can you understand what Benicio Del Toro is saying? And Brian's like, listen, this is his choice. And it was my choice to cast him. And it's his choice to bring the character. In, and he was doing his thing. And Brian even said, listen, if you don't understand what he's saying during the scene while we're shooting it, ask. Say, what wow. did he say? That's you know, cool. And so, yeah, and they did all of that. Mm. And Benicio, if you watch Usual Suspects and you see his character, you can't not love him because he's so kind of weird and strange. And Fenster yeah. becomes 
And that was that was people collaborating. Now, I'm not saying that every actor, you know, should be able to uh, let them off off their leash to do these kinds of things. You have to have a certain no. synergy between most people. actors need like a BDSM relationship with the director. <laughs> like yes. the director needs to be in control of all the things. And look, the thing is, it's like it's because by nature, ins- actors are insecure. I know that like I am and always was. And it was like and you also you can't see yourself. So if you look like a fool, you have no idea until you see it on the screen. And it's utterly mortifying to go through that. So it's like you really have to trust the director that he's got your back and he's not going to make you look like an asshole. So it's like you do kind of need to just give it like, all right, did we get it? Did we nail it? Like, you have to like be you know trusting of him. But to yep. what you're saying about del toro I, I always admired actors who just like i had to learn a lot of the technical stuff like imagining how i fit into the story like it's not just all about my performance it's like you also have to like you just see the whole thing and he and some actors have that vision like almost immediately like they just get it it's like damn that is impressive i wish i had like instincts like that yeah you know one of the first actors I, i've only directed one movie but the first person i cast in that movie was eric mccormack who played will on will and grace Oh, cool. And he had just come down from Canada. He'd been acting in Canada, but he was theatrically trained. And, you know, I always worry he he likes props. He likes stuff to fiddle with, like in a scene. Mm-hmm. And I was worried because I was also editing the movie. I'm like, you know, actors who, if they do something different on each take, like you go in for a close-up or you're a medium shot or a wide shot, if they're fiddling with something and they don't do the same movements exactly the same every time, it won't edit. You have jump, you have edit continuity problems. He, because he was theatrically trained, had trained himself when he's doing stuff with props. He, it was part of his performance. So he was able to duplicate that every single time. That's amazing. And I was blown away by this. And, I, you know, he was the first person. He was the first person we read for this movie that had a lot of roles. And I didn't know this. <laughs> I, after I saw him perform, you know, he was in the audition. I'm like, fine, you're hired. <laughs> in the my, room in the room and my casting director's like you can't say that i'm like ah yeah i can't you know i didn't understand protocol right. I'm like, dude you're hired i'm like call his agent what do we need to do you're in the movie <laughs> and and i didn't in my exuberance and my enthusiasm i didn't and he hadn't got will and grace yet so nobody really knew who he was right i was just blown away in the audition i'm like this there i i couldn't imagine anyone who and of course i did see other people you know, my casting director was like, well, you know, we have to see some other people. I'm like, fine. Nobody held a candle to him. I mean, it was, and you want, one of the things that people don't realize. Well, it would have sucked if they did. And that happened to me once. So I, oh. I, I, they booked it in the room. They're like, you got it. And then like, I called them the next day and they're like, oh, we went with someone else. It was like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I would have. I don't oh. think I would. I, I, I mean, I, Sorry, but, but what was really interesting to me is, is whenever you, casting is rough because you want the, the casting director and the director and the producer, anybody who's sitting in that room, every time somebody walks through the door, you want them to blow you away. You want them. You never not want somebody to be great, you know, and or at least and they could be great actors, but just not right for the role, mm. you know, and you want people to to do that. And I think this is kind of a uh, this is kind of an interesting story. So I was casting a, a, a bit part of a waitress. It was kind of a throwaway part. And this waitress is the the line that she was supposed to say is one of the characters, Eric asks, well, where's my food? You know what? Where is it? And the the line was the woman says, well, there was a fight in the kitchen. And Eric says, what does that mean? There's not enough pepper on this. There's too much salt on that. And the the actress says, 
there was a fight in the kitchen, sir, and she walks off. So this actress that I didn't know, a friend of a friend, so I'm like, yeah, I'll see her. So she would go, she said, there was a fight in the kitchen, and then I'm reading with her. I go, what do you mean, you know, there was a fight in the kitchen? There's too much on this and not enough on that. And she, in the room, had already made this choice. She knew the line, the, it was an inconsequential part, so she signed as if she was deaf. She said, I'm man, I'm done. There was a fight in the kitchen. And she was speaking it, doing hand, like she was sign, using sign language to say that line. And I laughed out loud because she took a nothing part and turned it into something that was not on the page and turned it into a joke that wasn't there before. Oh. Now, and I'm not saying that every actor should do that, but she she knew that this was just a bit part, like a walk-on part, but she turned it into something that elevated what was already on the page mm -hmm. and and made it better yeah and i was like i'm like again i told my casting director she's hot i didn't say it in the room i said we, we gotta <laughs> hire we gotta hire her and i thought you know that was a great hire but on the other hand she never did it when we were shooting quite as well mm -hmm. and that might be my own perception because it was the first time i'd ever heard it and she jokes she, Sometimes jokes just don't work better than the first time you do it. Like it's hard to duplicate because the the expectation is there, like that lack of expert, you know, and you don't you're not expecting her to say or do anything, and neither is she. Maybe maybe it was just an inspired moment. She just threw it out there. And that is that is tough to duplicate, man. That's a it's that's a tough, tough thing. To duplicate moments. But again, I think that that you know, great filmmakers understand that those moments happen. And if you allow, if you if you encourage a place where especially actors are allowed to play a little bit you know now we don't we don't really there isn't enough time to rehearse you hear back like movies were made 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago where the, the director and his actors had a week to rehearse and just play with the characters mm -hmm. you know that's like invaluable because you know now we well we're going to start on day one and we just expect to capture lightning in a bottle every single day and that's kind of silly to me I can't tell you the amount of times I got the scene after we shot it. I was like, oh, that was the scene. You know what I mean? But it was already shot. There's like, you know, it's already done because now the pressure's off and your brain's actually working like in a proper way. But it's like, it does. It takes time. You have to unlock these things. And sometimes you don't even see it from the creator's point of view. Like I, I like the few things that I wrote, I was like, oh, that's what this is. And it just all of a sudden it melds and works and you, you need time to work on it. You can't just, it's not a fucking machine. It's not a factory. It's not, it's not a widget. It's an artistic no. process. And that's why, you know, nowadays we're spending $150 million on these movies. And I think one of the great things that they did, and I really believe that it was Peter Jackson that sort of pioneered this on the first Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, is that they build in time for reshoots. Because you'd think on a $150 million movie to think that you're going to get magic each and every day and that every mm -hmm. scene is going to work is absurd. So like everyone, it's people kind of understand now, but a couple of years back, like, uh oh, so-and-so, this movie's being reshot. They're going in for reshoots and people would talk, it's going to be terrible. Well, no, now on larger properties, they build in a reshoot, a, a planned reshoot because, you know, you're cutting a movie together and you're looking at it and you're like, you know what? On paper, this read properly, but based on what we've got now, what we've shot, what we've seen, it would be great if we could go back and sort of rejigger this scene and change things around and add a little bit more that'll that'll help us tell the story. 
And I think that's actually a really good thing. So I, I'm for the most, that's not saying that some films are a disaster and they have to be reshot. Yeah, reshoot a couple yeah. weeks before you're filming. Uh, yeah, that, that can be problematic. Cold. So it's not always a good thing, but no, but, but I, there's like an know. example I can think of. I hate to give this guy any kind of shine, but Ryan Johnson's Brick, which I thought was a terrific movie. Me I too. I love yeah, it. I really loved it. Um, but the ending, I don't know if you ever saw the special features. I mean, the ending, the original ending is, is horrific. Like, you cannot believe that's the ending it's, that they, no, they shot. It's, it's, I just watched that Blu-ray recently. And staggering, it's like in a football field, and they just and she's just explaining everything. It's so clunky and bad, and it was like they're like, let's go with a different. They went and reshot it, and it's like it really. If that was the ending, that film would have been a disaster. It would have been completely forgettable. No one would have like remembered it, or like wouldn't have been like a like a relatively historic film. But like because they went back, like learned, reshot, it's so much better. No, and I think it, it takes you know it takes talented people to recognize that this ending doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You know, and what we can what we can do to make it better, and I think that's part of the filmmaking process. And that's thing: movies are very iterative. You're, you're, the Lord of the Rings movies were a perfect example of that. You know, they were constantly changing things around and shooting things. Ah, this doesn't work, and going back and fixing things. And famously, when they were scoring the two towers, they didn't even have the Ents, you know, the giant trees attacking Saruman's fortress at Isengard. That wasn't even oh, wow. in the end of the movie. No way. And, and they, Peter Jackson's like, we have to have this. We have to have the Ents attacking Isengard. Yeah. And so he threw out, he calls Weta Digital from London where they're scoring the movie. And he says, listen, man, I need you guys to come up with little vignettes, like little things that are going to happen in each part of this battle. And let's, let's get it on and let's make this happen. And they did. And it makes the end of that movie. Could you, you know? imagine if that wasn't there, then there would be no arc for the Ents at all. Nope. Wow. Right. Uh, real quick, I had to get, there's been a super chat and I, I wanted to get to it. It's just a $5 super chat, but it, it, we appreciate every super chat. I Absolutely. can't believe anyone pays me anything. And uh, Rob Altis just said, VW, keep it going. He said it a while ago. I hope you're still here, Rob. I'm sorry it took me a minute to see a super chat. And I, uh, also, there's a few things from the chat in general. Uh, we got a couple questions uh, from another Robert. Uh, our Robert asking about uh, he said that uh, R&B the martyr horror uh, movie <laughs> recommended was great can you suggest any other in that caliber well martyrs is for those of you who don't know don't watch the American remake martyrs is a very rough very surprising horror film that isn't for everybody but it left my jaw on the floor like I'm always looking for philosophically uh, philosophically um relevant horror and what i would say that like for instance i don't know if you guys have ever seen a movie called the invitation but i, I believe it's on net and netflix karen kusama directed it if you want to see a really interesting horror film don't read anything about it <sighs> just go in cold and it's just a movie that's about a dinner party at a house that's all mm. you need to know it's just a dinner party it's a sequel to clue uh, it's not like that, but it'll, it's surprising. But so Martyrs, Martyrs is a French, a French language horror film. And I, I kept reading reviews of it in articles like in Fangoria. And I'm like, I couldn't tell, like, what is this movie about? You know, and and I I was like, I couldn't. And I literally started watching it and my jaw hit the floor. Wow. And while it's not very pleasant and I don't know how much fun it was to watch um it certainly blew me away 
I'm like, oh my god! I don't know how much fun? <laughs> and yeah, girl apparently was blown away. She said, "I seen the inv- invitation, very different, and went in blind." And was like, "Whoa!" Yeah, see, that's what I want from horror. And you know, growing up, look, I love the Friday the Thirteenth movies. I love um, uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street films. But to me, my favorite horror movies are more along the lines of like The Fly. You know, the Jeff Goldblum fly. And I like movies that have something to say because, you know, horror can be horror is, is the one genre where you can delve into the human experience and, and examine things that we might not be proud of in terms of ourselves. Mm. And and I've always loved that about great. Or you can have just a, a, a horror movie, ghosts and it can just scare you. But I like those films that are disturbing. Like I like the original Hellraiser and. Mm. So there's another movie. It's a lot more. I've always said that if you really want a great French horror double feature, watch Martyrs. And then once you're ready to slit your throat open and scoop your eyeballs out, go then watch another French horror movie called Inside. And Inside, they and both both of these movies have been remade in English terribly. But, <laughs> uh, but watch Inside and... Again, don't read anything about these movies. There's another good movie, uh, a British horror film called The Ritual, about these guys that go on a hike through the woods to honor their friend who who's died. I really like that recently. There's another French movie called Raw, if you haven't seen Raw. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen any of these. I feel bad. Like, I haven't I can't, seen can't anything. I haven't this conversation oh, at all. There's some really good... There's some really good... Uh, but again, these are not necessarily traditional the kind of horror movies that people are thinking about. Um, mm-hmm. But they're, they are sort of disturbing. There's another movie that came out that David Cronenberg's son, Brandon Cronenberg, made called Possessor. That's kind of a sci-fi horror film. If you watch the uncut version, again, not as great as I wanted it to be, but still interesting. I mean, that's that's what I'm, I'm kind of looking for. A lot of people don't like that from their horror movies, but obviously uh, one of the, your viewers liked The Invitation. Is that see- Islington girl? Is that who is it? that the yeah, Islington, Islington girl? girl. She liked Islington it. Yeah, yeah. So, so she's uh, to me. I think the Islington girl and I park our shuttlecrafts in the same shuttle bay. We like, <laughs> we like. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go watch the. It's a little slow at first, but when stuff happens, stuff happens. Yeah, and like Ari Aster's movies, yeah. like um, uh, um, Hereditary and Midsummer. Um, those are pretty interesting, and I like those kind of slow burn horror films but the invitation is really interesting because you're watching this and you're like what is this movie really about like i'd only heard about it and i'm I'm watching it and then it then stuff happens uh vinnie yeah, art, said Vinny he art saw the ritual. Uh, yeah he says like the ritual i saw the one robert the ritual is great and another he's the movie... answer to the question where's the talent because vinnie art is a talented creator he's doing comics and he's Hell. He's a, he's been a crowdfunded. He's been a crowdfunded comic. I think that's Hell. where a lot of the creators are going into independent realms. Uh, well, I completely agree. Independent, so I just want to have like him as well. But he he also watched uh, like the ritual. Yeah, and you know I think what's really great is we now live in an age where creators. I mean, look at what Ethan Van Skyver did with Cyberfrog. You know Absolutely. he he made a ton of money. He's going directly to his audience, and whether mm-hmm. or not. Forget what you think about Ethan Van Skyver. You know, you might not like his politics or what he has to say, but as a business person, he demands your respect because he was able to go out there, create his own IP, go directly rather than using middlemen or publishers or whatever. He went right to his own audience and his audience funded his work. And by the way, I'm with Sentient. I loved Hereditary and I hated Midsummer. Um, (laughs) uh, I agree with you. 
But I have a friend no, that no, just he's wears. Green with sensitive dildo that'll give that'll make his head even bigger. Oh, <laughs> well, but but you know that's I think that's really cool that we live in this day and age where you can actually reach out to your audience and 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 go with them directly. And it's fascinating, and I think quite frankly, for like what Robert Mario Burnett's doing, at least the way he talks about the comic industry, it sounds like it's he's infinitely more successful for doing it that way too. Like he talks about his contemporaries who worked for DC and Marvel their whole lives, and they're like broke because they were just hired guns who didn't really like, you know, they didn't they spent all this time and they got these great you know runs out there, but they don't get like big money off of it. No, like it just right. all goes to the company. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think that you know that's that's to be admired and he gets his product out to his 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 uh, customers his patrons yeah. or, and that's that's a really respectable laudable thing and and you know what's interesting to me is like i didn't grow up in a world thinking that i had to agree with everybody you know and yeah. I, but but i i res- the people that i even disagree with i have a healthy respect for people that i could vehemently disagree with Mm-hmm. But I might respect their intellect and their their opinions and what they've done with their lives, and and I think we've, I think we have a fundamental lack of respect for our fellow human beings. I think Absolutely. that is probably the single biggest problem that we we have in our world today. There Hell. is, there Damn. is a there's a, a complete lack of respect for other people, and you know, even people that are now trying to do good. Uh, if you want to be call yourself a, a social justice warrior, there is a way of being that way where you can still respect people that you might hate. But instead, everybody comes at everybody else from the position of, well, I know better than you. So yeah, you better that's... suck up what I believe, buddy, or I'm going to go and destroy your life. And it's like, where does that come from? Who put you in that position? You know, if you're speaking truth, your truth should be self-evident. Your truth should be something that we can come to an agreement on after a careful examination of the facts. But nowadays, people just say, this is the way I want the world to be. And if it's not this way right now, you're the enemy. Yeah. And I'm going to go after your livelihood. And it's like, wait, what? A lot of people are disingenuous, though. A lot of people are just using these things as means to get clout. And therefore, they don't even have a genuine basis for whatever they're championing. And in a lot of cases, they've kind of destroyed or at least sullied whatever the name of whatever they're championing to where, you know, somebody, when you said inclusion earlier, said, oh, inclusion, because that just means to us, especially in this thing, okay, we're going to get something that's poorly written and that everyone's just going to hide behind. Well, this is a gay and black and this. So therefore, there's nothing good. Like I, I, I said with Batwoman, when I was casted, I said, hey, the, the creators feel like they're done because they casted a black woman. They're not going to try anything at all. And it, that, that seems to have come to pass as far as writing has gone. It's like there's no you talked about doing Dota and there was love. There's always, you know, I think there needs to be love for people who are working on something uh, creative. Yeah. And if yeah, that's you know, not there, you know, uh, like I remember when the, the Milestone universe where Dwayne McDuffie and like Dennis Cowan were working on the Milestone universe for D.C., which is a. It was an it was an adjunct. It was all black creators, yeah. And they were creating characters like Static and Icon, and you know they were saying, "Yeah, we're black creators," but they're not like buy our books because we're black. 
Right. They were yeah. black creators that were making great comic books, and I'm like, well, yeah. "This is pretty rad," you know. And I'm and and I was a popular show for his, for his era. Yeah, and I'm reading these comics, and I really liked them, but but they weren't beating me over the head. They were the there were black protagonists in these comics made by black creators, and I thought that was really cool. It was an interesting voice. There was they were they were delving into subject matter that isn't traditionally dealt with in comics in a really cool way, and I'm like, great. Did but either were, of you guys? Sorry to interrupt, but oh, did either of you guys see just some guy's video about uh, like SJWs and villains? Oh, dude! First of all, I love his channel. Ditto. I love just some guy. For those of you who don't watch his channel, first of all, he's very smart. Genius. He's very yeah. funny. Yep. He's very funny, and and I really think that his channel. And you know, that's somebody that I would. I think some people would say that. Oh, why do you watch his channel? He's like negative, and I'm like, I don't, no. I don't see him as being negative. <laughs> I see him as always delivering thoughtful social commentary wrapped in a fan bow, and I <laughs> think that's really great. And I never miss one of his videos. And that and video, I think, yeah. And I think he calls people out, and and rightfully so. But he's not mean about it. I mean. He's cutting no, and costing. He's cutting, but, sure. He he says but, what he, he really believes, but he's not a jerk. No, yeah, he's yeah. backing. He's backing that stuff up. He's he's using people's own words. He's saying, "Okay, you said this. Let's yeah. let's let's run this down." And I think a lot of a lot of people nowadays, you know, there's not a lot of cogent discourse. And and even if you no, disagree with somebody, disagree with them for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to go after them go after them for the right reasons and demand that they be held accountable for what they say. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, I think that just some guy is a, is a, is a great example of, of that. He, you know, I've streamed with him a couple times and, and he watches stuff I've done and I have mad respect for him. And I, I love when he drops a video because also I've also learned things about the comic industry. Cause I, I love comic books, but I only buy omnibuses now. The, there's nothing that's coming out recently, especially from DC and Marvel, that I'm particularly interested in mm -hmm. anymore, yeah. which makes me sad considering I have thousands of <laughs> thousands of comics and omnibuses in this where I'm sitting. But, but that, yeah. I'll say that that video about SJWs and villains was he nailed it. Like, I think that I, I want to make a video about his video because of how much he really cracked it. It's like he really oh, did. That's really what it is. It's it's like uh, the fourth they, age has talked about that as well. Just how they identify with the villains because they are they, the villain. They are the in villain. real yeah. life. They are the villain, and it's like oh my, like it's just it was so he he did it. He figured it out. I was like wow, like all, that's that should all now great be villains think they're the hero. Yeah, dude, it was it was really something else, and I just I think it's so insightful to the way they. They talk about culture, the way they interact with people, and the way they make entertainment. It was fascinating. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you know, it's funny to me. The truth of storytelling is self-evident because ultimately, what is a story? What is the function of a story? A story is supposed to convey through narrative shared human experience. Whatever whatever happens to the protagonist and what's going on in, in within the body of a story there's human truths there that the author of that story is hoping to convey to others, to the mm -hmm. audience. So to me, stories have their own truths that are very self-evident. And one of the reasons that I think, for instance, I don't want to cause a huge stir in the, in the, but the last Jedi, the last Jedi was not truthful when it came to the character of Luke Skywalker. Now I understand what Ryan Johnson and I respect Ryan Johnson. I've liked the films he's made, 
But in the case of what, and, and by the way, he was dealt a hand of cards that JJ Abrams gave him at the end of Force Awakens, anyway. But but them, you know, if you're if you're a kid and you watch Star, you you're, you're you're eight years old right now, and you discover Star Wars and you watch them in order. When you get to the end of Return of the Jedi, the galaxy is the, liberated. The rebels have won. Luke Skywalker is a full-fledged Jedi. He confronts Vader. He takes out the Emperor with Vader's help. All is right with the world. And then you're finishing that movie, and you are streaming on Disney+, and then you go to Episode 7, The Force Awakens. What does that movie do but completely destroy everything that's in Return of the Jedi. There is literally no, everything. There's liter no progression. No, no. Thing. And it makes your characters that you've now followed look like idiots. It the makes Force it, it just it, it invalidates everything they did. And it turns it, yeah, on Solo it into it on Solo has Leia lost the Millennium Falcon. He lost the Millennium Falcon. He broke up with Leia. His he's not only did his relationship with Leia not go well, it was so bad they actually created the next Darth Vader. That's how what? much that's how bad their relationship went. That's like that the relationship you're rooting for that you're invested in. Actually, he creates you know new space Hitler. And, and not only that, they've allowed they've allowed the first order to come about and to build Where, when, a planetary-sized super weapon that had to have taken at least, we know the Death Star took about 20 years to build. Mm -hmm. So how long did it take to build Starkiller Base? And who allowed all those contractors out of their union contracts to go build that thing for the First Order? And no None one missed the missing star? I, I, mean, <laughs> like, it, no one picked I mean, you look at this kind of thing, and this is my problem, and I'll tell you, to me, The Force Awakens... And this, by the way, I don't blame Kathleen Kennedy for this. I blame the fact that Disney's mandate was probably like, okay, we have to make a new Star Wars saga, but we can't rely on, on Luke, Han, Leia, R2, 3PO. These are characters that are pushing 70. You know, we can't, That's we're true. Disney. We can't do that. I and think to it's me, a little to, more malicious than that. I think it more has to do with the uh, the the rights to the uh, merchandise. Is that I think oh, Lucas no, was, retained yeah. them, and they're like, well, if yeah, we can get rid of them, PR. yeah, if we can get rid of them, then we can like start establish this new series for the next fifty years that will just catch cash checks on. No, all all of that was part of it. I think all of that was part of it, but that, that was corporate was thinking. That mm -hmm. was corporate. What corporate thinking? What they don't understand is that. Wait a minute, you. Are you telling me like any any filmmaker and I don't know why JJ Abrams and why Lawrence Kasdan and why everybody who made The Force Awakens went this way but are you telling me you're going to put Luke, Han, Leia, Chewie, R2 and 3PO in a movie together and you're not going to have them share scenes? Not one. You're not going to have them like like to me this is is and I I saw a video uh Chris Gore was talking about this from Film Threat. He goes, and I love this word. He said, this is studio malpractice. Yeah. And I, I, and I thought, I, I did too. I was like, man, and yeah. And if you committed malpractice in a hospital, you get sued. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how do you not, how do you take R2-D2, who was heroic in six previous movies and literally throw a tarp over him the whole movie? He's literally got a tarp over him over in the corner so you can add your mirth-filled BB-8 droid that'll be more kids. Are, kids already have their R2s. Mm -hmm. We need to sell a new merch. You know, let's let's give the Millennium Falcon a square or a rectangular yep. dish so 
J.J. Abrams can carve out for Bad Robot a little bit of that cheddar, that merchandising cheddar, because whenever you sell a 3PO with a red arm or a Millennium Falcon with a rectangular dish, we know it's from The Force Awakens, so we get some of that money. I mean, that's great. Same thing about Grogu, everyone in the chat. I know you but guys But the thing is, it. the thing is, they could have got, they could have had their cake and ate it too if they just respected the story. Like, what I yeah. thought would have been interesting was like, okay, you want to, I mean, you do have to give your characters a journey. So if they're already the biggest heroes in the galaxy, what are they just going to become more heroic by the next, you know? So it's like, maybe the Republic has become kind of like this, maybe it's contentious in the government or maybe Luke's gotten complacent and he's not really active and he's letting other evils come and he has to like you know be reminded by even like a young ray or something like there's yep. a way to do that story yes, or, there is and it's it's just that they it's so poorly conceived like i listened to all of mauler's videos about the force awakens and the last jedi and i like re-listened to them and it's like you like the complete lack of world building in in the force awakens alone is is disturbing like it's it's genuinely disturbing when you have a billion dollar franchise on your hands and it's like you didn't really consider what the Republic was before you started shooting this thing. Like you didn't even imagine no. what the world looked like right I'll now. What were what the what was me. the progression of events? Like who who's in power? Who isn't? Where's Luke? Where's Hans? Like I, you're just gonna pull them out when you need them. It's like I completely agree. Like they should have had. Uh, and what's f interesting is you read like a lot of these explanations in the visual dictionary from the force awakens. And they have like somebody who's writing the visual dictionary is going, well, this doesn't make any sense. So let's, uh, let's figure this out and, and come up with a backstory. But like what you just said, any, these are questions that you have to sit down and go, okay, 30 years have gone by in the star Wars galaxy. I'll bet you, we could pull 10 people that are watching the stream right now, put them in a room, with the three of us and go, all right, let's run it down. Where do you all think that the galaxy is 30 years after the end of return of the Jedi? What's mm -hmm. going on? And we could go around the room and everybody would have some pretty good ideas. Mm -hmm. You're like, Oh, okay. That's interesting. And, and let's say we want to like, Luke is at a crossroads in his life 30 years later. Why is he at a crossroads? What might've happened? Mm -hmm. You know, and you could come up with all these things. And like you just said, come up with a, a story that people would be like, that's a good story. Yeah. But force awakens, like, it, it's this weird there. I, I think what's really interesting is force awakens doesn't really have a story. No, it, has, it, it has, it's no. all like you're watching various cut scenes of a video game. It was a trailer. It, it, and then yeah. there's no, like who is Lars von, Lars von Seca. When you meet, meet Max von Sydow at the beginning of this movie, they act in this scene, in the opening of force awakens, they act like you're already supposed to know who Poe Dameron is. Yeah. And you're already, yes. they, because they don't introduce these characters, it's like you came in right after a commercial break of a TV show and you're playing catch up the whole time. I'm like, who is this guy? You can't just tell me he's a great pilot because what does that mean? I don't yeah. know who he is. And other who than cares? For who? What is who does he fly for? Is he for the Republic? He's with this new yeah. thing called the Resistance. What the fuck is the Resistance? What are you resisting against? Right, You're right, in yeah. power. That no, would be the like, biggest thing of like, the trilogy. I mean, yeah, yeah I don't want to get I don't want to get totally derailed on this. No, but no, these no. are questions. These are questions. And, and when you're showing these movies to a corporation, there's a lot of people that obviously Force Awakens made two billion dollars. Mm -hmm. So the the answer is, well, they everybody who made Force Awakens was correct. They were right. But again, you're not taking into consideration that people love Star Wars. There's multi generations of people that love Star Wars and you're putting everyone's favorite characters back in that movie. And and not in the way they wanted them back, but they didn't know that yet, and and so of course and they it was going to make. Look, 
success aside, they did this without a plan. Right. That's like, what I was trying to say. Yeah. yeah like, That's the biggest thing. Even if you say, okay, evil corporation aside, this is what boggles my mind. Big corporation, we're trying to make money. We want to make money. Wouldn't you want, okay, what is the beginning, middle of end so we can line up all our marketing? Right. Where are the toys for the rise of so- Soy Walker? Do they yeah. exist? Wouldn't you want everything lined up? Wouldn't you need a beginning, middle, to end? Because we're going to spend about 10 years plus or ever doing Star Wars movies and making merchandise and selling Star Wars parks. So we need a, a outline. What is your beginning, middle, to end? And that is the biggest sin. Even if it was an unsatisfactory beginning, middle, and end, and I'd argue the prequels kind of are already, we would have been happy with a with a vision throughout. And there yeah. was none. It was none. just, hey, let's make a trailer. And then it was like, hey, let me just switch all the expectations because I, you know, uh, and then it was just the third one. Well, JJ is just a bad writer. Like he thinks writing is like this uh, explorative process, which it is, but it's also rewriting. You don't just come up with an idea and imagine I'll pay that off later. Like you have come up with an idea and then you pay it off yourself and then you restructure it. And that's how you write something. It's like, I can't believe I have to explain this to one of the most famous and successful directors in history, but he doesn't seem to understand it. Well, he's made well, five, in my mind, five bad science fiction films. He made two bad Star Trek movies. Super 8 is a bad Spielberg homage. And Force Awakens and Rise of Skywalker are are what they are. They're, they're I mean, the funny thing about it is... the most profitable for IP in movies. Yeah, I, 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 it's such a weird thing. And now, the thing about Grogu, I just want to... Like, to me, you know, Favreau and Filoni doing The Mandalorian, they kind of understood, was Grogu something that was shameless perhaps but the idea that we know that there's yaddle in the prequel trilogy so yoda there's other yoda-esque there's other people in of yoda's race yodai at yodai and to to know to meet to meet a new one i thought was what a genius idea you because you never think about okay for 900 years have I trained Jedi. Yoda's been around for a long time. Why wouldn't there be new members of his race? Yeah. You know, and, yeah, and nothing I, wrong with that. And I'm like, that was pretty, uh, that was a lot of fun. And then yeah. to lead up to the fact that he's a force user and give us Luke Skywalker at the height of his Jedi powers coming in to pick him up at the end. That to me, I'm like, well, there's people, there's, this is the kind of thinking that you want you know, I mean, I still man- don't think they had a plan with the Mandalorian, but I think that they're more either. they're more like uh, wise and intelligent writers where they imagined a plan like halfway through. They're like, oh, that would work. That would yes. actually make sense. You know what I mean? I, I, don't I think agree. Were, and you see it developing, plan. you know, yeah. once because they don't know. They, they did with the sequels. Like, I don't know if they necessarily immediately plan to pay off Grogu the second season. And that may have been an audible, but there definitely was some sort of like. The whole premise is we have to get Grogu to his uh, his race or something. Well, right. Was it, though? I mean, was that from the beginning? No, I, I, I bet it wasn't. I bet it, but but these are people that understand. Like, at first, they had to see if I think it worked at all. Yeah. You yes. know? And once, I agree with that. once it was developing and they knew it worked all, they're using that new stagecraft technology and they're 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 doing things and and i think that look there's a lot of the mandalorian that i think is like wonky in the first season mm. the mandalorians are down the street from the crime bosses that are down the street from the empire it's like everybody's yes. on the same street yeah. and there's, there's things like that was a little <laughs> weird like 
Like we're we're the Mandalorian, we're underground, we're secret, but yet our base is next door to this other guy. Like it was weird. And it's a small universe too. Like there's only like three planets, and like one of them's <laughs> fucking Tatooine. Of course it is. It's like yes. yeah, yeah. And they have to go <laughs> back. A lot of Mandalorians. So so there was a lot of wackiness, but the thing is, the spirit was there. That's true. You know, yeah. the, the verve and the fun of it all, like when all those Mandalorians show up in all their armor and kick ass, I'm like hell yeah, you know, it looked cool. cool. And it had like they do a lot of practical effects too, which to me shows passion that they didn't want to just be like this clunky CGI fest. They really wanted to like make it look like it's got texture. And yeah, I mean, it's there's I there's something there, but it's still like it just feels a little hollow. Like there's good ideas that kind yeah. of are inconsistently strung together. Yeah. Like, Although I think, like you that. know, I think they've, by the latter half of the second season, I think they were really cooking like that scene with Bill Burr confronting yes. the, the Imperial officer talking about what happened on that, where that massacre occurred, that civilian massacre, that scene, you learn more about the empire and how the, cause we'd never seen, We'd never had somebody converse and talk about their actions from the Imperial side at length. And I'm yeah. like, wow, okay. Now this show has sort of come into its own. And that final episode where you you got Bo-Katan and you've got uh, all these kind of characters, Fennec Shan and all these people coming back, I I'm like, okay, they now know what this is supposed to be. And I I'm thinking, okay, this is awesome because mm -hmm. you've got, you've got Filoni, you've got Favreau, you've got a strong creative team. They're bringing on bespoke directors, you know, let's get Taika Waititi to do one. And even, even bringing in Bryce Dallas Howard, she comes from a Ron Howard. Uh, my dad's taught me what I know. She's, she was able hey, to do a lot of really I'm more interested stuff. in fucking Robert Rodriguez being there. And Robert yeah. Rodriguez, his episode with Boba Fett, that kicked ass. That you first know? one when they were, that when they, that was great. Having no script, basically. And now yeah. he's, yeah, yeah, now he's doing the book of Boba Fett. Um, and I think they've really got a bunch of people that are having a great time making this that want to do stuff that's cool. So yeah, I'm excited so. to see where it goes. I mean, I appreciate that. I, I'm so skeptical, though. Like, I just feel like I've been burned so many times. I, it's like for, for me to get my hopes up, it's like, OK, bringing my girlfriend back. But you're not going to cheat on me this time, right? Yes. You know? like, <laughs> yeah, like, real quick. Times? I have to get I don't want to wait too long for Super Chats because I, I appreciate oh, yeah. each and every one. Man of War 665, Neighbor of the Beast, who yeah. was Matt's first Super Chat. You never forget your first. He's one of my early ones. Says, what do you mean? We need a plan. I, I, I do, actually, I do want to clarify my point about uh, like I, I, I agree that Mandalorian. I don't think both seasons were planned out, but I do think there was some. It was much more coordination in that story than the story that the prequel or the sequel trilogy told. There yeah, was especially actual, in season two. Yeah, and I think the tail end of season two, even though I, I predicted at least in my opinion correctly that that bait that uh, Luke Skywalker was a bait and switch. Um. And I hope I'm wrong. We'll see. We'll see what the book will fit. I'm I'm a little sour. I'm very soured on a lot of the stuff Disney has done. Um, but you know, speaking of which, this is a, some somebody said in the chat, and I, I I haven't seen it, so I can't really criticize. But what is your opinion of Loki? Because I, if I remember correctly, you you're one of the more positive on Loki the series. Oh yeah, no, I'm really enjoying it because it it first of all, to me, what I really appreciate about marvel is they go back to their comic books for source material they're not like everything they've done the fact that they went back to ed brubaker's run on captain america where he created the winter soldier now it's not a perfect adaptation of the winter soldier comic storyline nor should it be because it's an adaptation 
But the fact that they looked back to that for a character, all they're taking all of this stuff out of the comics. And the Time Variance Authority in Loki was created by Walt Simonson in the pages of Thor. So they're in the 80s. So they're going mm -hmm. back and they're looking at their own history to 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 develop these stories. Now, there's a lot, I think a lot of people now are they they are allowing their fear or their hatred of a lot of woke storytelling to cloud their judgment as to whether or not something is good or not. We talk about that sometimes. We kind of wonder if, like, we're jumping at shadows, and uh, you know, like, are, are we do are we close minded to literally everything? But in my opinion, look, we're in, we're in media PTSD right now, and yes. we've been through a lot. And it's yes. like how you can't blame me if I'm a little punchy at you know you just every single thing that gets made getting destroyed. Like it's like it's the whole thing with Kevin Smith and He Man. He's like, oh, wait and boy. see it. It's like fuck you, wait and see it. Like how many times do I have to go through this? And like it's not like at the end once I did go through it and I had a good point about it, you'd be like, yeah, no, that's true. Like you'd still fight me and like vigilante said you'd call me toxic. So it's like uh, I'm just not really patient any longer you kind of you kind of earned up all my goodwill i sort of spent it and now it's gone and sorry if i'm a little sensitive <laughs> well no, that, that very valid point but i would say this you know in the first episode of of loki like i was streaming with az and we were having a, an argument about loki like i liked it a lot and he didn't like it at all he's like oh it negates the value of the whole marvel universe and i was trying to explain in the infinity stones i was trying to explain no no, and then on episode, and he was talking about well, what about free will? In the second episode, Loki says, this is bullshit. What about free will? Are you telling me that I have no free will, that all of this predetermined? So they're dealing with this stuff in the show, and I think for what we're getting, it's it's really, I'm finding it fascinating. I've, I've really enjoyed the first two episodes. I thought they were really, really good, and I can't wait to see where it's going to go. Now, people, people think, you know, they get mad, like, oh, there's going to be female Loki. And I'm like, okay, but let's see where it's going to go. Now, um, I thought WandaVision started very strong, but unfortunately yeah. it didn't It didn't go to the That's places I would have hoped it went. I, I, I didn't live up to what I'd hoped. And then Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I thought, unfortunately, if you watch the making of, they had to really shift what the what it was about because literally they were dealing with a pandemic within the show like that was part of the story that they had to change up but i'll tell you one thing the central idea of that ep, that show where you brought in the isaiah bradley character again coming from a great comic miniseries called the truth from the early aughts his central uh argument with sam wilson is that America is never going to let a, let a black man become Captain America. That's what Isaiah Bradley said. He was somebody who was experimented on. You know, he was a stand-in for what really happened, the Tuskegee experiments, the fact that the United States would not allow black soldiers to avail themselves of the GI Bill when they returned from World War II. All of these things, he was standing in just like in the comic series, and they had a really interesting debate. And at the central core of Falcon and Winter Soldier was Sam Wilson saying, yeah, I know all that. I know. This is a racist fucking country. And, and yet I choose to be above all of this. And I'm going to stand as an example. And I'm going to be Captain America. Because at the beginning of the show, he's like, I'm not. I can't. I can't hack it. Steve Rogers instilled in me. He gave me the shield. I am not worthy of stepping up to the plate and, and he gives this shield to the he gives it to the Smithsonian. And by the end of that show, 
because of his experience, he says, you know what? I can take on the mantle. I'm going to take on the mantle of Captain America, despite all that. And I think that, which is the core story of Falcon the Winter Soldier, is a really important story to tell. It harks back so, to the Marvel comic universe. It brings in the character of Isaiah Bradley that dealt with these very difficult concepts about it is not it is not woke necessarily to go in and, and tell the story to have a, a proxy character that talks about the injustices that were done to black American soldiers in World War II. I thought that was absolutely the way to deal with it is in the context of fantasy and science fiction because it's more palatable for people than banging them over the head with these social issues. Well, That's why Gene Roddenberry did it in Star Trek and Rod Serling did it in The Twilight Zone, and they were really good at it. And people yeah, will be more open-minded. They're not, but they're they're not good at it. And I actually have an anecdote. I have an anecdote that a very recent anecdote. I went to a store with my Batman shirt. And so the lady at the cashier is constantly asking me about like superhero stuff. So she did not understand why Falcon gave up the shield. And this is a black lady. This is an older black lady. So I didn't get that. I didn't understand. She, it didn't connect to her. And the right. reason is, is because she didn't come to the, she didn't come to Falcon and the Winter Soldier to get a history lesson on the Tuskegee Airmen. She could have looked up the Tuskegee experiment if she wanted to. Just like I didn't, I, I, and I'm a black guy, I'm not on camera because, of, you know, mask and everything. Else. But like, I, I don't like that. I don't, you you don't have the sensitivity to tell that story in a comic book story. Don't make the Tulsa Black Wall Street thing a, a bunch of brainwashed people. Don't do that. I think you cheapen the stories by doing that, and you you miss out on the core. And so my my point is, you would think that this this older black lady would be a target audience for what you're trying to say, and yet she doesn't even connect on it because that's not why she's coming here. She didn't come to uh, get Chinese food from Pizza Hut. She wanted. An action, action-oriented, you know, Marvel. Some people escape this shit. Some people actually don't want to live in the past and live in pain all the time and be reminded of all the bad things that happened. Some people want to turn the TV on and actually forget about that shit. Well, but I, 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 I completely agree with you. But if you look at some of our great science fiction, fantasy, and horror uh, programming, a lot of it is in fact allegorical. I agree. You know, that. and and like. Like one of the great episodes, well, I don't know if it's a great episode. Uh, 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 I would say I call it a meat and potatoes episode of Star Trek. It's an episode from the second season, the original series called The Private Little War. And in this episode, there is a group of primitive hill people that are existing with the villagers. And they're, they hate each other. And the villagers are being armed by the Klingon Empire. The, Klingon is give, the Klingons are giving them flintlock rifles, uh, primitive weapons, but still weapons they shouldn't have. And the, the hill people are getting uh, picked off. It's totally an allegory for Vietnam mm -hmm. because they couldn't exactly talk about Vietnam. It, they weren't allowed to do that on television in the late 60s. So in the episode, Kirk comes down because he knows he, he used to stay with one of the guys who's part of the hill people. And he's like, look, and there's a great conversation where McCoy and Kirk are literally yelling at each other. Kirk is like, we have to arm the hill people so they can defend themselves against the village people. Not that sing YMCA. And, and Kirk is like, uh, and the doctor's like, you can't do that. You are condemning these people year after year, decade after decade of an endless war. You know, this was heady stuff. And, and it's directly referring to the war in Southeast Asia, not yeah, by but, name. But, but Robert, it's an abstraction. 
it's not a one for one explaining the situation like like it would be like making it would be like going to another planet and then there's asian people there and they're fighting against like americans like it's they don't have any artistic it, abstraction it's like there's you said allegory well that's not an allegory they're explaining the situation there's it's a blunt it beats you over the head like we, i was talking last night about the wire now apparently the wire how it works on the second level that it's about iraq and afghanistan like that's like that's like a dual. Oh, I don't know about that. That's what David, my, that's David one Simon my... says that. That's David Simon's words. Really? He says that. Yeah. And it's well, like so my but my point is if you he he's gonna comment on that, like it's like he's so complex, he's commenting on it like adjacent. He's not just explaining the point of view that the audience should share. He's going to talk about it and let you come to your own conclusion, let you have an actual discussion. I don't think these modern properties, when they talk about any of this stuff, do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about it, but I think the sin is that the what the just some guy's villain video applies perfectly to both WandaVision and and uh, uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Oh, I, like, I, I, look, I but, don't disagree yeah. with you. I, I don't think the writing was up to par, but I think that the story that was being told was certainly a valid story because after all, you know, Sam Wilson taking over the role of Captain America, it, you know, looking into that is is valid and they've dealt with that in the comics as well. And I think, look, you know, people are like, well, we don't want our politics in in this kind of entertainment. But Falcon and the Winter, I mean, um, Captain America, the Winter Soldier is absolutely, it talks about our surveillance state. It is not subtle about the things that it's directly addressing. And I don't have a problem with, you know, if you were making a 70s conspiracy thriller, like the Parallax View or Three Days of the Condor or whatever, it's pretty overt in terms of what, what the, the forces that it's dealing with. And now... The, the idea of corporations or big pharma or whatever. I, I don't think these are subject matters that should be off limits, but it is about the writing. And I will agree. I think there were times when Falcon and the Winter Soldier was just too didactic. It was saying, this is the way it should be. I'm like, dudes, great writing doesn't necessarily mean you have to explain exactly how it's we literally the opposite. It's show, don't tell. It's literally the opposite. Yeah, and, and we should be able to infer these kinds of things. And I'll tell you something. Yeah. The, and, Sam, and Sam Wilson. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's the difference. Uh, I think that's the difference mm -hmm. is that I think Sam Wilson, it doesn't matter. The fact that he's black is just one of the many reasons why he might question his ability to accept the mantle of Captain America. There's a lot of reasons he can't live up to, you know, he sees Steve Rogers as a, as a hero out of time. Here's a man that fought in World War II. How can Sam Wilson be that guy? He didn't. Or he's never going to fight in World War II, the well, greatest generation. Isn't so Sam, a veteran now. Yeah, he so. is a veteran. Yeah. So, because here's my thing: if he wanted to reject it based upon being his own man, I would have been. I've been positive on that. I agree. But just him. It, that that's the biggest criticism. What about Sam Wilson, the individual? What about Falcon? Why does he have to lose himself to take on someone else's mantle? What about I, his own mantle and his own individualism? I that completely totally agree with you. The criticism I personally had. Hey, Walter, I'd much rather, uh, Walter, if he was going to reject that, I'd rather him reject it at the end and saying, you know what, I'm going to be Falcon instead. I just I wanted to, that I wanted to back really up my point about the wire real quick. The twelfth, okay, the twelfth and final episode of the third season is is called mission accomplished right oh. 
Remember that, you know, big banner, Bush yeah. is standing oh, on yes. the aircraft. Of course. So it's like, I'm pretty sure there is something to that. It's like, it's like the, the show MASH is about Korea, but it's really about Vietnam. It's like, but the audience, no one wants to be told that. If like you had like a character saying murder is bad, you'd be like, are you fucking crazy? Do you really expect me to enjoy that? But it's like when you show like the pain of something that like go, people go through with a murder, or how, how it impacts people and the repercussions, it's like then you dwell on it and you come to that conclusion as a person and you, you, know, you, you value human life. But if you just explain your morality or you explain your point of view point blank, no interpretation, no dual meaning, it's it's insulting and it's very difficult to sit through. And it's, I think the issue is more like in, uh, in past times, we would have just overlooked something like that, something that blunt, but the thing is it's everything it's everywhere. And it's not well, just in your not Marvel it's on Twitter. It's in the news. It's, it's everywhere you look. It's like, you're just being overwhelmed with this one world view and people, I think people are just sick of it. I no, I agree with you. And I think the real key comes down to great writing. Yeah, I agree. You know, these stories are, are the, the problem. Here's what I don't, like the the these stories are not giving the audience enough credit for being smart and because they're and, not because in their point of view if you don't already agree you're not smart i agree with that i i and i think that that's that's problematic and and again when i hear people like alex kurtzman say that they're using star trek as a platform to push their own political agenda i'm like you know what what makes you think that your political agenda is correct and what I what I can't stand is that all of these people that are coming out with righteous indignation, I believe that there are certain human truths, like one of them is we should treat all people kindly. You know, as, as human beings, it is it is better to treat your fellow human being with kindness and understanding than it is to not. Because ultimately, we're all living in a society that we want to continue to move forward. I think this is a basic human truth that has been proved time and time again. And now we were on a pretty good evolutionary path. Human beings were, especially in this country, things were getting better Agreed. on every level. Could they have gotten better sooner? Sure. Could they? Th but we were on a track where people, things were genuinely getting better. We were very aware. Like if you ask anybody, for instance, I have gay friends that will tell you 25 years ago, they would have said there is no way that we would ever have gay marriage in this country. No way. Now I talk to my friends, one, one friend in particular who I've known since I was two years old, who's married to his husband. He's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe that, that, that how much social change occurred in 20 years. And Patrice O'Neill, I mean, do you remember Chris Rock in the 90s saying there's never going to be a black president? Yeah, and, yeah uh, tell me about it. Yeah, and the comedian Patrice O'Neill, I remember listening to these old episodes of Opie and Anthony where it was like before the, the Obama election, he still didn't believe it was going to happen. Even with all the hype, he's like, never, nope. white people are never going to vote for a black president. Like That was like his twice. point of view. Yeah, twice. And, and it's it, this social evolution was happening. Why was it happening? Because it's ultimately the way things are supposed to be. Right. You know, and and the eventually that we will come to realize as more and more people are traveling around the world, our communications technology means we can speak to people all over the world. We're now exposed to many different ideas, many different things that we didn't normally have to consider. And now we're going through, it seems like over the last five or six, and I'm not necessarily going to bl blame the Trump presidency on this, but things have changed. Part of it's, a lot of it's happening in academia. You know, the, yeah, in, in the colleges, and and it's 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 hugely problematic. 
And what's what's amazing is I love seeing white academics writing books about white racism and uh, and telling white people how racist they are. It's a complete, you know, and I, I wasn't really aware, like there's a economist, this guy, black guy named Thomas Sowell. He's in his 90s. Yes, I love Thomas Sowell. I've become a huge fan of Thomas Sowell and I've read a lot of his books now. And I've listened to a lot of his lectures on YouTube and people come at me and they're like, Rob, you're supposed to be a classical liberal. How can you like (laughs) Thomas Sowell? I'm like, have you ever listened to the man? (sighs) genius like the the man i'm like how do you and whether you agree i don't have to agree with everything thomas soul was saying but the man has spent his life thinking about these issues and as a black man and researching them and i'm like i'm like how do you not just because you might reject something he says what i don't understand is like the people that a lot of people in our culture that are being rejected by a lot of people people that i would think would be on my my side of the fence or whatever they have always surprised me because they're not listening to what people are saying. They're Jeez. taking they're taking co- quotes out of context and they're judging people based on yeah. things. And I'm like, like another guy that I'm fascinated by is Jordan Peterson, because Jordan Peterson is somebody that that he, fucking base staff, base ass Roger Meyer, Meyer Burnett. I mean, I you know, and I, I'm <laughs> I like, and I I started I'm, find I'm, like I'm, like I grew up with with uh, trans friends. I had a lot of LB, LGBTQ friends. And never occurred to me that they were anything other than my friends because we we're friends because of shared interests. So it didn't. When the, the trans um, uh, controversy erupted around Jordan Peterson, it was really interesting to me because Jordan Peterson was actually not talking about trans rights or trans people at all. He was talking about compelled speech and how that he was pointing out the dangers of the fact that if you're going to compel people to use certain words this is bad in a free society mm-hmm. now he was also saying at the same time that doesn't mean that if i meet somebody who identifies as trans that i am not going to talk that i won't use their preferred pronouns he flat out says it i will i will be respectful however they identify that's how i will address that person Right. But but so I don't want to be forced to do it by the government that I, you know, that I pay right, taxes right. to. And and his issue, like what, what I found fascinating about this, and I, you know, I didn't have a dog in this hunt. I didn't know who John, Jordan Peterson was. I hadn't read yeah. anything about his books. And but I saw this, I saw this, and I would watch these videos where he would be attacked by activists. And I'm like, wait a minute, you people are saying the two different things. On one hand, I really do believe that trans people need representation. They need to be recognized because I believe it is a naturally occurring thing that people, whether they're exposed to more estrogen or testosterone in the womb, eventually we will have scientific studies that show that this is an actual demonstrable state of being. It well, is a re- we it is- will if it proves it. If well, it well, proves yeah. it's not, we will absolutely not have that study. Sure, sure, of course. But I, I believe having just from my own personal experience, moving through life and knowing people, I believe that eventually it will be. And yeah. it will, it, it, I, I do. I, I believe that. And I believe people that uh, LGBTQ people are absolutely, for the most part, born that way. And that is based on my own personal experience, knowing many people throughout my life. So I believe that. Maybe it's not true, but I, I believe that one day will be proved correct. So I'm all about representation in terms of people. What we want is we want people's voices heard. Like, I also believe black Americans, especially in this country, have never achieved any kind of equality. 
they have had to deal with discrimination, institutional, social, personal, their whole lives. There has never been a time when there has not been racism against black Americans in this country ever. I mean, we're wrapping up the show. We're bringing up like the most complex topics. But I just, I just want to say what almost like, but I think, but but here's what I, you know what I would add to that. I would say that the new addition to that oppression is now called critical race theory. And it's said, and it's done in the name of quote unquote, helping people. I think a lot of the oppression now is this mental oppression that, well, because you're black, you just can't achieve as much. I'm not going to do that. I agree with you a hundred percent. And that's something that's been like, like this is, this is insane. This kind of shit is absolutely crazy. And it is in fact, like you just said, it's racist. This, this, I mean, the fact is like, I've always said on my show, each human being on this planet, there's only one of us in the cosmic infinitude of the universe. There is only, okay. Some people might have twins. I get it, but every single human being is unique. There's never been another one of you in the entire history of, of mankind on this planet, which means that our baseline, and I believe this should be that every single person is, has limitless value. They are, they're more precious than water. They're more precious than the carbon that makes us all up. Every single human being, every sentient being, and I would even go so far as to say animals are kind of this even way. Even dildos? Even sentient even dildos? Even sentient dildos, yes. We have a well, sentient dildo. But, okay. but, and and what we need to do as, a, as, the, as the, there is one race on this planet, that would be the human race. And until we see ourselves that way and we value ourselves that way, and not only that, we value others in the same way, we, we have a problem. And, and we also, we have a, a problem now where we need to respect one another and to bring yeah, it back we home. Do. We do, we're but all, that, that extends, like, that extends in different directions. It's not purely, you know, like the way you're, it's also like, yeah, respect that someone has a different opinion. Respect that someone lives a different way, has a different set of values that we don't need. In, in no direction do we need to conform to some sort of autocracy where we all have the exact nope. same point of view, worldview. We all think the same. And look, that's going to always create that's, challenges and going to create horrible, friction. Though. And that's I, I, I mean, it's, I just think life is gray, man. And I think it's like, it's important for you just to embrace the gray and understand that it's never going to be perfect. Life's a struggle. We're never going to achieve utopia and just do your best. I agree a hundred percent. And you know, our Western world is designed to celebrate indiv- the individual. Yes. Every, and the individual is what our civilization is based on. The inalienable rights of the, not the tribe, not the, not the group that you identify with. The group that you identify with does not supersede you as an individual. Agreed. And, and this is something that I think is incredibly important. Like my entire Agreed. channel, it's based on the idea that every single person has a story to tell that you haven't heard. And all you Nothing, have to do is man. listen. I say that every show. And what we are doing is we are moving away from the importance of the individual and, and putting the importance on a tribe. And the problem with the tribe is the tribe is like a corporation. The tribe yeah. only z- exists to serve itself, and and the tribe must continue on, and that isn't true. A tribe, you've got to have the each individual is what makes up the strength of whatever group you're in, and unless you celebrate the individual differences with people, your tribe is not going to be what you think it's going to be. Agreed. And we're moving away from that, and like you said, life is gray, and it's it's hard, and it's a struggle, and not everybody gets to be what they want to be, 
people are not like i think the human animal we should all be given the same um uh, ability to try and fail and do we we but we're not all equal. Everybody's born with different gifts, different strengths. Like I've always said, I'd love to have been, I played basketball when I was in uh, junior high and high school. I would have loved to have been like someone like LeBron James, but you know what? I wasn't good. Right. The reason I stopped playing basketball, I, I just was not as skilled as other members on my team. Yes. And it was maybe a bitter pill to swallow. It sucks, but it gives you character. You figure out your other strengths or, you yeah. know, you just get humble and like put, you know, kind of like get like you, you respect your place in the world. You respect that person more. Like it doesn't always have to be if you're not like the king of everything, then you're, you're shit. Like it's just not. No. You know, and, and Everyone's like, a beautiful snowflake. Snowflake. Robert. I just, I'm like, yeah, man, we got it. We got to find out that it's a tough, it's tough when you realize that I want to be this person, but I'm not qualified or good enough or great. And I can't do it. Say la vie, man. And, it's and that's, tough. that's a good thing. Yeah. Then you figure out I'm going to, I'm going to pivot or I'm going to move or I'm going to do something different and I'm going to start something new and create something that I, 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 I didn't know about. And, I'm not going to blame somebody for my failures. I'm going right. to get up and do something new. And, and, and maybe even I'll a guy like LeBron James or Kobe or whatever, those guys who are that elite, the, uh, the level of work ethic that yeah. they have. Like oh, I man. Read, it's unbelievable. Like I read this book. Hours and hours and hours in the gym. It's, it's staggering. Like I read this book called How Champions Think. And like the guy is like this uh, um, sports psychologist, Dr. Bob Rotella. And he was explaining like all the different things that LeBron did to get like his three point shooting. Like he, he would have like his team made a video of him making all these threes that he would watch over and over. And he would just like every single day had to sink like a thousand threes or whatever. It was like the, just the work ethic. That's one alone. element of, of playing basketball is one was, thing crazy and it's like yeah. you know his but, public but, persona aside the goddamn guy works hard he works hard and look what he's doing now he's getting into film production is he really yeah, yeah i mean well, i mean kareem abdul jabbar kareem abdul jabbar was one of the staff writers on the recent veronica mars tv series really yes i would have never known that had you not said me neither. dude kareem abdul jabbar go to the hollywood reporter and look up kareem abdul jabbar's columns he's writing about the entertainment business really really can you believe yes <laughs> well, i mean he was an airplane, he was an airplane. airplane. He, by the way kareem abdul jabbar is he wrote a book about sherlock holmes brother mycroft really kareem yes. abdul jabbar is a big fucking geek he is one of us he's, a, <laughs> he's big he's a he's an imagination he's connoisseur and so what wow. does he do he becomes one of the greatest basketball. He's one of the greatest ball players on, on the court who ever lived. Legend. He does some acting. I mean, he acted opposite Bruce Lee. He's an yeah. airplane. Yes. And now he's writing episodes of Veronica of Mars. That is interesting. I mean, Veronica Mars. Veronica That's Mars. That's a hell of a life to lead. That uh, is. Real quick. Fast I mean, Steven Seagal says, say infected mushroom, R&B, no. What is infected mushroom? <laughs> what is infected mushroom? Infected mu mushroom is an Israeli... Uh, electronic or techno band. Oh, and uh, they're awesome. Oh, okay, they're awesome. I'm a huge cool. infected mushroom fan, and it it it's. Uh, well, I'll I'll tell a story another time about about that. But um, how cool is it that you look at a guy like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? He has one career, becoming and what does he do? He doesn't like sit at home and 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 star in TV commercials for Geico now. No, he's completely reinvented himself. He's a novelist. He's a television writer. He's a Hollywood Reporter columnist. He's an activist. He has a whole different life. Like you guys, you didn't even know that about him. No. no. News to me. And I'm like, this is why life is great. And people can do anything if they want.
That's true. We just have to, what we need is to be able to provide a society where people believe they can do that. Yeah. And, and that's we have what we to want. nurture that kind of mentality, that sort Fuck of yeah, individualism. We do. Yeah. That's right. Man. That's exactly oh, right. You want to end on that, Vidge? Yeah. I don't think we can end on anything more positive than that, man. Yeah. Thank you for showing up. And this has been an incredible two hours, man. I feel like we could do another 100 hours if, yeah, if this was great. I mean, I feel this is, this is the kind of worthwhile, like we don't have to all agree about everything, but this is the kind yeah. of worthwhile discussion that we, this is what YouTube is made for. Here, here. Yeah. And it's good to have you in this community, dude. Like, it's interesting to have like a different perspective because we always talk about we don't want to live in an echo chamber. We don't want to go from one echo chamber to another. Like, we don't want to have to like, you know, the SJWs, like, you know, they drain us all. And then it's like, well, then we just go somewhere else and just agree. You know what I mean? Aggressively. It's like... I value, you know, contrasting ideas and different thoughts and like having a real conversation. So it's like, thank you for coming on here and doing that with us. It was really fun. Uh, You know what? And I want to thank you both because I thought this was very, uh, this is very worthwhile. I had a really good time. And this is, this is, I love having these conversations because this is why we communicate. Right on. Yeah, man. Yeah. We'll come back anytime, dude. Please, uh, you know what? I'd love this. I I would love this. Can you believe that? Uh, I like somebody. Uh, Robert says only two hours. It feels no, like twenty feels minutes. Like 20 it minutes. felt like That's twenty exactly minutes what to it me. Feels like. Yeah, you know by. when I stream with heel versus babyface and we're talking about action figures, like two and a half hours go by. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> what? 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 I guess that's what they call the flow when you have yeah. a, when you're in the in the flow, yeah. man. In the zone, like from that movie Soul, where you're just like in the zone. Did you see yeah. that? The movie. Yes, I did yeah, see yeah. that. Oh, it was good. I liked it. It was good. I I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> it's All so right. funny. Man of War six six five says true, but you're still wrong about one twelfth scale figures. Hey, listen, man. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say that I do have one twelfth scale figures. This is a one twelfth scale Moonlight. I do have a few. I do okay. have a few. <laughs> right on. It's just not my. It's not my preferred. Uh, uh, it's Format. not my preferred for scale of choice. Right but on. It's not like I don't have any. <laughs> awesome 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 well hey thank you again for coming thank you all this has been one of the more popular shows in the channel's history uh right with on. many people in the chat uh i think we what do we get the top of like 30 almost 40 people thank you all for being here um yeah it's a hey, please watch the playback this is entire this entire show is worth watching we yeah. talked about uh a lot of different things that are going on in hollywood we talked a little bit about what robert's doing now with dota and, and it was it was a great it was a great chat and I, like i said we could do another couple hours but um it's been two hours and that's that's we try to keep our show at two hours keep it neat and tight now, yes, way, somebody does ask vampirella. if this is vamp uh vampirella in the back uh it is this is vampirella nice nice yeah, yeah. Some people are like, hey, you know, that's really offensive that you have that Vampirella character on uh, your. I'm like, good, you know what? Good. I'm glad you're offended. Okay, you know, it's a 50 year old character. I'm sorry. I used to read Vampirella when I was a kid. This is a 50th anniversary figure. I'm sorry. I don't know why you're offended. No reason. I mean, they're not. You know. They just it's another opportunity to sound off. That's all it is. Uh, Classic Vigilante uh, said so he just got his first one six scale. Okay, can I just uh, say this is a pet peeve of mine? I got my first one. The question that I would ask is, which figure did you get? <laughs> oh, man, yeah. So which figure, uh, Classic? Which figure? Is did he get Rorschach? I mean, he's got Rorschach. As his, I don't uh, think he has the Rorschach uh, I have, You know, there's, they haven't made a really good six-scale Rorschach, and I, I've got a third-party figure on order. I can't wait. Oh, that's cool. Right on. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. I love that. All right, even Freddie Mercury is checking out Vampirella. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, he, Vampirella. he's singing to her. 
John, hey. that's, that's James Dean, John Lennon, Charlie, Charlie Chaplin, Jimi Hendrix. And uh, my, my six scale band is made up so far of, uh, well, that's John yeah, Lennon, uh, Freddie Mercury, and then uh, Jimi Hendrix. I'm, I'm, I'm that's always cool. looking to expand the band. Is that Bond <laughs> sitting down? That's actually Michael Corleone from Godfather. Oh, II. nice. Awesome. <laughs> He's awesome. Got his, yeah. <laughs> that's rad. And Class of Vigilante got the uh, White Wolf from The Witcher. Oh, that figure oh. is great, too. He would love a Rorschach, though. Nicely done. Yeah, I've there's a uh, the, again, I've I've got six scale figures of the comedian and Silk Spectre, but that's the only ones that Hot Toys made. Oh, okay. So, oh man, right on. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks, thanks gentlemen. This was a hoot. I guess we'll play the the intro slash outro and uh, get out of here. Thank you all for uh, showing up. If you if you just showed up, I see a lot of people just showed up. Please watch the replay. If you like the video, please like the video. If you're so obliged to share, subscribe, which some of you have done, and please also sub to my main man Fireball Productions. It should be in the um, description. If not, it should come across one of the bots. But yeah, if this show will be if, on his channel. Of course, again also week. sub to R and B. So yeah, obviously yeah. sub to R and B. Hopefully, you already are. I don't know what you're doing if you're not. But sub yeah. to yeah. R and B. Go, go to the Burnett Network on YouTube and subscribe and do all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Else you want to plug? I know you got the movie, uh, Tango. Well, uh, you know, Tango Shalom is playing at festivals. I don't know the next festival it's going to, but it'll be in a it'll be in a neighborhood near you. I mean, if you ever wanted to see a Jewish indie, indie spiritual quest family dance comedy fable, well then, <laughs> Tango Shalom is the movie for you. Uh, but then there's also Dota Dragon's Blood, which is if you like fantasy anime series, it's eight episodes. Uh, uh, the first episode, to be honest, starts a little conventionally, but it, it really takes off. And I think by the time you get to the end of the eight episodes, you'll be breathlessly anticipating season two, which I can't tell you when it's going to start because we don't know. But uh, they did green light a season two and uh, season two is way more epic than season one. Cool. So that's, right on. that's it. I'll, I'll check yeah. it out. I, you know what? I, I wasn't going to, but I will now, now that we've had yeah. you on and like. I'll give it a shot. Plus, they do same animation house that does Castlevania, right? It looks a lot like Castlevania. Yeah, it's got a lot of. I think the studio uh, studio Mirror does it. So yeah, okay. yeah, it looks great. Yeah. So. Darius says he was sub to R and B before he was sub to us, which I, I expect. Yeah, definitely. Probably. Was. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I was. <laughs> yes, yeah. I was definitely sub to R before I had a channel. Yeah. Sorry, well, uh, Robert does ask if I'm working on season two of Dota. Oh, yes, yeah. the answer is yes. Right on. Okay. Right yes, we have season two. So that's, that's dope. So is the nerd portal. So we get it. Everyone was sub to R and B before we existed. We know that. Man, yeah, he's, so. he's better than us. You should be. No, that's right, not uh, true. That's not true. We're just different. Just different. Okay, yeah, I like that. That's a good oh, spin. Yeah. That's We're nice. just different. We're just yeah. different. I, yeah, I like that. It's, uh, right it's more comforting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> makes me feel okay. I mean, if yeah. you guys started later, of course people would be. I was here first. Then yep. you. But then you know what? I. I I I was subscribed to Midnight's Edge and Nerdrotic and and Doomcock before I started in this business yeah. <laughs> on YouTube, you know, and just some guy. Uh, I was watching all these people and, and the Critical Drinker, you know, and yeah. all my favorite YouTubers. Yep. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, we meant to actually, we have to have you back because there's like a, so much stuff. I'm yeah. We no. left because the conversation just flowed so fastly and so quickly with that. 
two hour went like two, 20 minutes. Yeah. We have to have you back. For, we didn't for even that. get into like your YouTube career, which I had a lot of questions about. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I, and that's so weird. Cause I've been on YouTube for like six years now, which is nuts. That's wild, man. That's awesome. I mean, I yeah. started, you know, on Collider. I just, John Schnepp had me yeah, come man. in and for three and a half years, I would just show up, sit down, we'd do the show and I would leave. Like I had no, and it was Schnepp who would say, you should do your own YouTube show. I'm like, well, I don't know. What would I talk about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now of course three years later <laughs> here we are yeah man here we are this is dope yeah. so all right thank you for hanging out with us everybody this was awesome you guys are a wonderful community we value each and every one of you uh save sentient dildo but everyone else is great uh, thanks for hanging out <laughs> we'll see you on my channel next week all right uh peace peace